You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Ricky Coogan, Brad Pack Sleezebag, <laughs> Elijah C. Scuggs, Freak Show Tycoon, an amateur bioengineer. I can look at a guy like Kevin Custer and see a giant peach globe. When fate brought them together, Mr. Scuggs took an average Hollywood slime ball and made something out of him. It was a simple burglary that went horribly wrong. It is my opinion that the deceased was a tragic victim of his own misguided judgment. Now the nightmare is over at last. And the fun is about to begin. Three to five, should I leave them alone? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on. I invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. I'm not even going to get into too many details about next week, but just know that one of the characters wields a harpoon for a weapon, which is just incredibly powerful. So join that sleaze, please. Hell yeah. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for five to six years. There's like 140-plus mm-hmm. bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series, which there's like almost 50 of where we talk about new release genre films, which they're, you know, we're getting into the back half of the year. There's lots of genre movies on the way. There's some horror trash I'm sure we're going to get around to. I saw you watch oh, the yeah. Dracula Boat movie, Jamie. Me and you kind of liked did. it. I'm going to have to check it out. So yeah, it was it it, it had some. Uh, it could use more, but it had some actual surprising gore in it and stuff. So yeah, it had fun. Yeah. So uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheseOidsPodcast for anyone interested in those bonus episodes, as always. And speaking of which, we are going to uh, give the shoutouts right here. So welcome to uh, the youth critic. So, uh, subscribe for five dollars a month. Zed Adams, Noah. Rollings, uh, Mark, uh, Lex L, Johnny Mockney, Harry Nazan, uh, Alexander Paul, Sam Prickett, Jane Griffin, who uh, upped her subscription from $5 a month to $10 a month and joining us for the monthly virtual screenings, which we tried to do uh, live on the last Thursday of every given month. So, uh, And one of the movies we're talking about today actually was done on a virtual screening. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and actually one of the ones next week too. So the virtual screenings they're getting to the point where they're you know they're actually becoming influential enough that they are informing the show. So right. if you're interested, again, sign up. Uh, we also had Kami Mike sign up at five dollars a month. We had John Warren uh, sign up. John Hollis, uh, Enrique Ortiz. Um, we had Moderately Cold also do the uh, $5 to $10 a month upgrade. Thank you to Moderately Cold. We had Jordan Edwards sign up at $5. Uh, William Herman, uh, New Metal Jacket, and Scott Garvin. So thanks so much to all of you folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes, and we appreciate the support. Yes, thank you. 
That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening on either one of those platforms and I see the stats, I see you right now listening on both of those platforms. I'm looking into your soul. Uh, <laughs> please give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, and we appreciate that support as well. And then the very last plug for the week, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you guys have thought of a lot of things. We've had people buy pens. We've had people buy pillows, uh, notebooks, hoodies, just posters for their place. Um, you can find the link to that in the description of this episode, as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com if you are interested. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and we would have had a special returning guest, Spencer Ryder, from the Those Good Old Fashioned Values podcast on to talk some uh, uh, white-knuckle, impeccably crafted, authentic processed-based French thrillers. What a mouthful. Uh, (laughs) We talked uh, Henry Georges Clouseau's uh, now pretty iconic and well-known The Wages of Fear from 1953, which is all about, uh, for anyone who has maybe seen it remade into William Friedkin's Sorcerer, you know it is all about a uh, very precarious, expendable labor force in Latin America going on a suicide mission to carry nitroglycerin through the mountains for an American oil company, and it is true edge-of-your-seat insanity um, and it was cool to finally go back and see the original version since we had already covered Sorcerer previously and we paired that film with Jacques Becker's Le True or The Hole from 1960 which is exactly what it is titled it is a uh, based on a real 1947 prison break attempt and the film actually co-stars one of the actual prisoners who did it and it is a very minute meticulous procedural on how they dug a hole through their prison and tried to make their way out. And the keyword there, I guess, is tried for anyone who wants a spoiler <laughs> on the bleak ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you do have to see a lot of just pounding of cement and filing down of metal bars in order for them to just come up short it is uh it is kind of heart-wrenching in that sense sitting through four minutes uh, unbroken shots of those guys just pounding the floor and bonding through the the work effort that they are all putting in with their bodies and then just yeah all for ultimately betrayal as yeah. as as it goes. Um, but uh, Spencer's uh, pick over on the main feed two weeks ago actually uh, directly inspired us last week moving on over to the Patreon feed for the patrons exclusively, where uh, jumping off Latrue, um, we did some similarly uh, minute process-based thrills of watching skilled technicians very much planning and executing these uh, biographical prison breaks uh, that that also kind of take on an existential quality through, you know, how how they've been shot and how they've been made. Um, so we, of course, had to discuss maybe the most famous example for any cinephile with a Criterion subscription, Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped, uh, 
from 1956, which takes a very sort of minimalist and abstracted approach to its procedural prison break uh, subject matter as a World War II resistance fighter makes his way out of a Nazi prison. And he does so in the Bressonian, very stripped down, very austere style in order to find his way into this very artistic and psychological and spiritual uh, realm with the material. So we had uh, we, we had some fun talking about that as well as Escape from Alcatraz from 1979, which was essentially the like gritty American tough guy version slash yes. borderline remake of A Man Escaped uh, by, uh, you know, Hollywood veteran Don Siegel uh, and obviously Mr. Clint Eastwood playing Frank Morris, the guy who uh, did supposedly successfully escape from Alcatraz, resulting in uh, Alcatraz being shut down in the 1960s. Yeah, and it is it's it's a lot of fun to watch uh, a man escaped but with, you know, one-liners and just all this like the, the macho delivery that that Clint Eastwood and some of the the rest hands of the being tank chopped gives. off brutally with hatchets, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's the, just... the, 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 the kind of choice Bresson wouldn't make. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, bo- both uh, amazing films. I mean, we just we recently kind of watched Escape from Alcatraz the first time, at least within the last year, and uh, it's it's great. So yeah, no, yeah, that was what inspired it. Jamie and I just decided to throw it on. We were like, we both never seen this before. There's a new restoration out. Maybe we should just watch it. And then we did, and I was like, immediately, like w- within less than a year, we were like, this has to be an episode because man, yeah. a man escaped is uh, it's it's so. Uh, it owes so much of what it's doing, especially in its second half when it just gets into, you know, Clint Eastwood fashioning little makeshift escape tools and, you know, little suspense sequences of him trying to, like, uh, av- avoid the guards and overhearing them and things like that. And even even if it's not as uh, committed to the psychological perspective, maybe as Bresson's is where it's like all the all of the stuff in A Man Escaped where it's just locked into the prison cell with him and you literally can't see or hear anything that he wouldn't be able to see or hear while you're in the room with him it's uh horrifying at times yeah yeah definitely like with with escape uh from alcatraz there is a little bit more of that you get an insight on kind of what's conspiring behind the scenes a little bit and you're right i think it is a little scarier to just be right in there with one cell uh one cellmate and just just get their focus on it so yeah they're highly recommend both yeah. And uh, like Jamie and I, I would hope all of you were taking some notes for any of you end up yes. getting to prison. Uh, we basically just did like three documentary examples in a row on various ways to actually uh, make make your way out. So you absolutely uh, do need a spoon. We did learn that. That's the <laughs> it, most important been, tool. It's been an educational two weeks. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, moving on to this week, we have a bit of an, an interesting episode because as I'm sure most people can already tell by the title, this is a main feed episode without a guest. Uh, it's kind of kind of a little bit of a rare occurrence on the show. Sometimes schedules just don't work out. Sometimes we have uh, we have an episode that we want to program to meet a certain date. And that's kind of what's happening Um this week for us. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a, an, an episode that I've been thinking about kind of doing for 
a little bit because uh, once again, uh, I am at the Toronto International Film Festival, basically trying to watch as many movies in 10 days as is physically possible. <laughs> um, and as always, every year, one of my favorite programs or sections of the uh, festival is the Midnight Madness section, uh, the section dedicated to genre movies and midnight movies by the programmer Peter Koplowski, who's friend of the friend of the show. He came on last year and talked about The Wrong Guy and Mute Witness with us, which was uh, two films that actually played Midnight Madness and was uh, a lot of fun to to talk about. And uh, Peter actually does a, for anyone in Toronto, Peter does a year-round screening series based on movies that have been played in the Midnight Madness program. And one of the ones that he played uh, was a film called Freaked from 1993 uh, by uh, Alex Winter and Tom Stern, which he played on a film print. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I'm going to go check this out. And I was blown away by the fact that it was basically sort of like the Bill and Ted stoner comedy vibe that anyone who liked those films might like because it came out directly due to the popularity of the first Bill and Ted film. Mm -hmm. But it was also like Winter and Stern got to throw in their own like punk rock MTV butthole surfer body horror sensibility into it and basically do their own remake of like Todd Browning's freaks and somehow got a studio budget to do that, which you can tell based on like the sets and makeup alone. And I saw that yeah. last year and I was fucking floored by it. And I was like, at some point we definitely have to uh, talk about this on the show. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you can just tell when you're watching it. Um, even, even my brothers and I who are prone to loving weird things were like, this is an incredibly strange film. So <laughs> I imagine any producer that was on the set day to day was just thinking to themselves, what did I throw $12 million at? But I'm so glad that they did. It's one of the wackiest, craziest things I've ever seen. So yeah, yeah. We we can't even really get into details for anyone who hasn't seen it without yeah. like probably just confusing people off the jump. So we'll have to wait till <laughs> we actually kind of get into it to start breaking down what it is. Um, but I, I I knew I wanted to talk about this, and um, I wasn't sure. Honestly, it's so unlike so many movies that I've ever seen before. I was like, I legitimately was struggling to come up with like, what would we talk about that with? There were a couple yeah. things that I was floating around, but one idea I had was I was like, well, hey, that played, because Peter programmed it, I knew that that played Midnight Madness in 1993, which means it's having its 30th anniversary this year, um, uh, which is which is cool, especially too, because we'll talk about it, but the movie was a bit of a box office flop, and some of the main acclaim that it got was actually at the Midnight Madness screening that it had. Mm -hmm. um, which is, I couldn't imagine being like the audience who, you know, saw that before without knowing what it was for the first time at <laughs> midnight in, in Toronto. It probably was fucking crazy. Yeah, um, the, the vibes would have been off the charts for <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, so then I was like, well, I, I took a look at the rest of the 1993 set. I was like, maybe I can find something else in here. And, and by total happenstance, there happened to be one other film in the 1993 Midnight Madness program that was similarly gleeful and animated and kind of gross and had some funhouse energy to it. And, and you know, uh, it was basically a comedy that circled back around into being a horror film. And uh, that film is uh, this extremely underseen and bizarre Australian uh, crime gone wrong thriller uh, called Frauds, which... Uh, <laughs> only 400 people have logged this on Letterboxd yeah. and it stars Phil Collins as a peewee-esque <laughs> like evil, 
evil man child who basically just like loves cruel, elaborate, like Rube Goldberg style pranks that he plays on people. Um, and it, he's also like a claims insurance investigator. Um, <laughs> who it's, it's just like, I, it's, it, it has so many wacky sets and again, so many insane details that again, I don't think I can really say much about it without just starting to confuse people. But if you love like eighties, Tim Burton, this is maybe the yeah. closest I've seen anyone who's not Tim Burton get to that kind of level of sophisticated and childish, like mania that he has visually speaking. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. One actually just did pop into my head that it kind of reminded me of the style, and I think a lot of people would have seen this at least when they were uh, kids. Is um, Matilda? That um, <laughs> yes, yeah, very it's got much a so. lot of the. We'll get to it, but it's got a lot of those like gr- kind of gross close-ups and just um, unflattering zooms and things like that. So. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and one note about Matilda, speaking of the Burton connection, that is actually shot by Tim Burton's cinematographer from the era of doing like um, uh, Beetlejuice oh, and yeah. Edward Scissorhands and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah, it totally makes sense. And this this film very much lines up with that. This one's even wackier though, like it's it's far crazier. So, cause there, there's even some adult themes that we'll get into as well and some, some surprising violence, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's literally Phil Collins' playing pranks on Hugo Weaving and his wife in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's very, very visually intense. And I was you know, quite surprised that again, I, I like when we do on the show sometimes where just by total happenstance, we happen to find something that like under a thousand people have logged it. And uh, yeah, this is just, this is a, an insane one. You'll want to, you'll want to stick around to hear about it. Cause uh, yeah. I honestly, we were, we did it as the virtual screening for the $10 patrons. And even describing it live, we were kind of hysterical laughing we were like this is a <laughs> right. this is ridiculous just describing the plot that's unfolding right in front of us so <laughs> yeah that is the uh, uniting factor of the double feature this week for sure but uh yeah that being said i think we are going to jump right into it here uh let's kick things off let's get started with freaked always wanted to do oh Introducing Larry Bud Melman as the President of the United States. What's the matter? Right over the rock stop. In Freaked, coming soon to a theater. Freaked, but ugly, but funny. Welcome to show business, morons. All right, we are talking Freaked, the 1993 American absurdist comedy sci-fi body horror film (laughs) written and directed by Alex Winter, Tom Stern, and co-written by Tim Burns. And obviously starring Alex Winter alongside a uh, uh, Randy Quaid and Megan Ward and a ton of other sort of like small comic uh, sort of like cameo performances from Bobcat uh, Goldthwait, John Hawks, Brooke Shields, Mr. T, and even (laughs) a very subtle one by Winter's Bill and Ted co-star, Mr. Keanu Reeves, which we will we will talk about because it's very fun. Um, now, uh, as 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 I mentioned, uh, I saw this about a year ago on a 35 millimeter print uh, as part of Peter Kaplowski's monthly Midnight Madness program, where he actually had Tim Burns uh, in person uh, there for the Q and A and had uh, Tom Stern phone in on the big screen. Um, so the, the 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 history of this one is quite interesting. Um, Alex Winter, uh, previously, obviously, we've covered him on Bill and Ted, which he is hilarious in, and that second one especially is the one that we covered on the 
show because of the insane levels of like production design and like set pieces or they, they're like straight up going to hell and hanging out with William Sadler as death who also makes his way back into this film as well. Um, but uh, Alex Winter uh, went to NYU, uh, which is where he met Tom Stern, who's a fellow film student with him. And one of the things that Peter actually played before um, the screening was their short film called The Squeal of Death, which was this like 16 millimeter sort of like absurdist comedy horror short, one that was very heavily inspired by kind of like Sam Raimi. And it was all about like a, a freakishly obsessive cinephile who thinks he's in like a noir film. And uh, either way, that actually they, they kind of shopped that around to people the same way that Sam Raimi did. And people were, you know, got kind of interested in it. And it actually got them kind of like some music video gigs into the mid late 80s. Um, and, uh, the, uh, that and the connection, um, plus the success of Bill and Ted in 1989 got them this short lived half hour sketch comedy show that some people might've heard of on MTV called the idiot box, which is basically <laughs> where they first started working with the other co-writer Tim Burns. And it was the show very obviously inspired by kind of like Monty Python sketch comedy, like you know, parts of this too even reminded me of stuff like meaning of life. Uh, yeah. there's a big vomit gag in it, which we'll talk about. Um, but also things like Tim Burns especially was going crazy at the Q and a talking about like mad magazine and the Zucker brothers and all this stuff. They just kind of grew up devouring and thinking we're hilarious and just constantly coming up with jokes all the time. And so that mixed with the nineties MTV culture and a little bit of the kind of, uh, you know, sort of like punkish rock, experimental noise rock attitude that those guys kind of yeah. had that they, kind of that you know, they were art too. like a lot of, uh, almost like melting faces or over overblown makeup and just grotesque exactly. kind of vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Turning it into something that's like very like psychedelic and anarchic. Mm. They were really into the band butthole surfers who <laughs> actually did the soundtrack for this film as a result. And uh, apparently the show was just like pure slapstick, like parody insanity. They did like fake commercials and shows, some of which actually makes its way into this movie. Mm -hmm. And they they yeah. they constantly tried to find a like, you know, particularly violent and kind of grotesque angle to stuff. And as a result, they only recorded about six episodes or so of that show before the executives started getting concerned about it. <laughs> and uh, they basically took a lot of the comedic ideas they came up with at it and they took it over to Fox instead because they, they were like, hey, we have a good idea. So they pitched Fox Studios somehow on this like vulgar 90s weirdo punk rock thing. And they would be like, if you want to get kids interested, if you want to get like, you know, people who the, the MTV kids who are really into like Ren and Stimpy and shit like that, if you want to get those kids into, you know, I can get their butts in seats and yeah. whatever Fox executive was there was like 12 million dollars give it to them. They have this pitch called the hideous mutant freaks spelled with a Z, you know, and it was love, functionally I, like, I rarely say this, but I really love who, whatever producer that was that went, you know, what? Yeah. <laughs> this deserves the $12 million. He just like smoked a J off break or something like that. And he was ready to go. I love it. Well, it, and it's hilarious because functionally they pitched him on the Todd Browning movie freaks complete with the circus freak show setting. Yeah. But like, again, done in this very grotesque comic style that, 
that, you know, this very, you know, sort of like post-punk confrontational thing that they they, they had. And, uh, you know, it, it ends up being this movie about this, you know, this sort of uh, proprietor, mad scientist, Elijah C. Scruggs, played by Randy Quaid, who transforms these unsuspecting tourists into these man-made mutants using this uh, biogenetic fertilizer, uh, one of which is including Alex Winter, playing this guy named Ricky Coogan, who is the, uh, you know, this very sort of like uh, self-centered Los Angeles actor. And when, when, when they pitched this to the studio executive, apparently he was like, as long as you can like avoid the R and like push the PG 13, as far as you can take it, he was like, I'll get you like an advertising deal. I'll get you like a toy deal. Like we'll do all of this kind of stuff, which unfortunately all fell through because Rupert Murdoch over at Fox fired that studio executive. Damn it. (laughs) And during the post-production of the film and replaced him with a guy who like fucking just hated their concept and was like, why are we making this some like stiff suit guy? Yeah. And they were doing test screenings of the film that weren't doing well. And so he basically, he totally cut their post-production budget. He made them cut like 15 to 20 minutes out of the movie. He totally screwed their distribution um, and, and, and marketing to the point where they essentially killed the film's theatrical release because it was supposed to be a wide this was supposed to be a wide release movie which is insane to think about watching it <laughs> but it only ended up playing in two theaters uh in in the United States after generating some acclaim including at the uh Toronto Film Festival and yeah, didn't uh, it only make like $6,000 or something like that yeah like yeah, brutal it wild. is a 12 million dollar budget like it, the total the total box office gross of this film was $30,000 yeah that's got to be one of the biggest blunders no just in the sense of like scale there that's crazy it's 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 got to be up there now i'm i i would hope that fox maybe gave it some sort of like video release and it maybe found like a cult video release following after the fact i don't really know the numbers on all of that but this movie deserved a lot better because when i saw this man i i loved this like it was like Mm -hmm. it was so evident just on a purely filmic, like even just like a textual level of what they made, the money's on the screen. It is consistently inventive and chaotic in terms of its visual style. It's very, this is, this is part of those uh, kinds of films that I talk about on the show that we, I, I really like where it's like, I have affection for movies that are made by genuine outsiders and quote unquote freaks who yeah. just for some reason get a chance to run the asylum and go crazy with their weird sensibilities and, and, and obsessions. And even like incorporate that into the story where it's all about these weirdos and outcasts who are like overthrowing some like corporate attempt to squash them or something like that. Like the movie, this most reminded me of that we've covered on the show is actually UHF, the weird totally. owl, like sort of sketch comedy movie. That's all about wacky absurdity. And like, what would the freaks do if they got a chance to run a TV channel? And what would that look like? And, and functionally, it has kind of that consistent. This is very like, similar. The, the 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 there's a plot like a centralized plot to focus on, but a lot of the stuff in between that can be anywhere from connecting to a character and also just 
completely random make just trying to make you laugh which this has oh my god yeah through. you can you you can fucking tell that this is just a bunch of threads of friends like throwing every stupid ambitious yeah. gag they could possibly come up with at the wall and seeing seeing if, if it sticks or not and that's going to work for people or not because there's yes. there's some you know there's a couple jokes in here that you know even even at a live screening with a bunch of diehard fans which i did which by the way i i mentioned this in my review but there was an entire theater row at my screening filled with milkmen so like mm-hmm. that's how crazy and like they, they were committed awesome. they were full dressed up they had all of the props and everything like so people you know there are hardcore fans of this and you understand why uh because it got such a shameful uh it got treated so shamefully for for what it is but you know also there's like an extended joke in this about like the bob villa like home improvement guy like a reference show <laughs> yeah. that e- e- even in a, a room full of audience diehards everyone was kind of like who like what like yeah, it, it just I, it, I so, was so there's some of, elements of this that don't necessarily play to a modern audience but there's still some stuff that is like i think universal yeah and i do think that even the things that you don't quite get because it's based on the more of the era like the celebrities of the era maybe um i think the joke still lands because just the idea of like him being having a tour as this newly found freak to you know the 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 kind of the freak show grounds and everything and having that guy just pop up and be like you know what you really could do to bring out some more sunlight in here i think like the joke still lands but yeah i agree the specific the specificity of it is a little bit too obscure nowadays i guess yeah, I mean, that's it. reference humor always kind of dates itself a little bit, um, yeah. even if even for people who are maybe even like caught up on, on the era, like there's there's still some funny stuff in here. Like I there's a reference to Brooke Shields, like a, a, book, a Blue Lagoon 2 that kind of, <laughs> right. you know, maybe, maybe made me chuckle. But the stuff that really works about this and the stuff that really like that they threw at the wall and did stick is just the absolute like uh you know sort of like monster movie insanity of it all crazy uh you know throwaway physical gags uh giant uzi wielding eyeball guards which we'll talk about but like (laughs) you know even just having like a full-on like straight out of zucker brothers airplane like a kid getting sucked out of an airplane and falling on farmland like a dummy like it's just that's the kind of comedy that no matter you know there's stuff in here that's very specific to 90s weirdos that was meant to horrify the parents of the era especially yeah. some of the like grotesque body horror and gooey creature effects because we'll we'll get into this a lot of the specifics of it because there's a ton of makeup to talk about um but, but as like soon as you the see main, the names uh the screaming main. mad george in the vomit textured like stop stop motion credits of the movie you're like yeah that's the guy who did big trouble little china guy who did nightmare on elm street 3 the guy who did society yes. so you kind of know what you're in for <laughs> yeah and the, the thing is like this is the kind of movie that it it one of the main jokes with that kid is just abusing that kid over and over and over and over again. I find that to be absolutely hilarious. And they kind of make him more, you know, like a cartoonish character. He's got these these big glasses and they even put, I think, anyway, I hope I'm not insulting the child here, but um, they put these like giant prosthetic ears on him as well just to make Apparently him that was uh, unfortunately also his actual ears. So we wow. are just ripping on this child. Well, we are just ripping on this child. Well, I, I apologize to, 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 to be child. To be fair to him, I think he's incredible. He oh, looks exactly like he was cast 
because he looks exactly like the ginger kid from Mad Magazine. Like the glasses, Absolutely. the ears, the the the, the teeth. Like Absolutely. It, the, so, he's the whole package. We'll apologize for the ears, but kid, you were well <laughs> casted. You nailed it. So I mean, yeah, no, no hate whatsoever. I think he's honestly one of the he's like top three funniest characters in this entire thing. And it is legitimately like a 12, 13 year old kid just giving it his all in every scene. So I mean hats yeah. off to him. Um also yeah, the ears do look ridiculous. I'm not sure I <laughs> yeah. believe them that they are uh, real, but apparently I honestly uh, thought from the si- from a side profile at one point because I was looking at them to see if they added anything to the kid and anything, and it seemed like they had those kind of you could almost see the the almost seams of the glue or whatever from the skin. But hey, mate, whatever, it's all good. The kid's talented. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but 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 definitely you can tell that like these guys are, you know, like they're already self-confessed fans of of Sam Raimi. You can feel a little bit of that in some of the, uh, you know, sort of grotesque visual mania that they come up with. But also I, I haven't seen them talk a whole lot about it, but they have to be fans of like Peter Jackson, yeah. early Peter Jackson. This reminds totally. me almost of his uh, splatter movie era, something like Bad Taste. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, shared sensibility too, especially in the very like deranged, hyperactive kind of nonsense sense of humor. Like there's stuff in here that's stupid, but they lean into it with so much commitment, like formally, yeah. that I have to just like respect it on on some level. But yeah, and anyone who's into like transgressive comedy or like punk rock prankster vulgarity and energy, like this is. This is as extreme and offensive as you could probably be in the 90s while maintaining a PG-13 budget and getting studio money to do absurd makeup and sets and elaborately staged set pieces and stuff. Yeah, and everybody is on the same page here, which is great, and you can just tell. It seems like whoever was doing the makeup, you know, the directing, the writing, I mean, a lot of the writing and directing is coming from the same people, so it's definitely a, a, a vision that they had. But, um, like, every single person from Alex Winter to Randy Quaid to, obviously, the, the freaks themselves have this very, very cartoonish, exaggerated performance to them where not only are they doing huge, grotesque close-ups on their faces a lot of the time, but they're you know, contorting their faces whenever, whenever Rick, the, the character that Alex Winter is playing is doing, you know, he's, he's saying something smug. He has just the most disgusting and huge smile on his face. And, um, yeah, it's it, like a smirking caricature, making the kind of yes. faces out of like Zoolander or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Like this is parody through and through, even down to the performances. And even when they're doing, you know, more trying to have the the sentimental, serious moment of the film, like when, you know, two characters are going through the, the freak transformation or something, it's still built for comedy and kind of a, a crudeness. And um, I just I, I it's incredibly consistent the entire runtime. And I, I love that. The commitment is great. Yeah. And, and, and it's like it's 80 minutes, like like right yeah. off the start. You get a stop motion, like psychedelic claymation, like vomit looking credits of just the things like, rock. For, yeah, forming into faces. The butthole surfers are just being like freaked freaked (laughs) and even the 80 minutes kind of goes in my opinion i don't know if it was because it was cut up to ship from the studio eventually that would kind of make sense in a way but i think the the runtime really works well because it has that kind of punk rock attitude like most punk songs are you know two minutes three minutes maximum it's very fast and kind of out of there and this feels like that like there's no fat on this thing whatsoever the plot moves like crazy um, uh, on purposely. And so you don't really have time to, 
to really think about a lot of the nonsense that's that keeps being thrown at you. You just have to really embrace it and enjoy it. Um, very no, much and, like and, a punk and, and, and even the framework is so like loosely established like this idea <laughs> yeah. of the whole movie is like essentially one long flashback told by Ricky Coogan played by Alex Winter and he's supposed to be this very sort of self-centered like you know smug uh, you know sort of former adorable child star who's just mm-hmm. now like an an LA asshole actor essentially and, and he's pretty, um, basically being hired only for it seems like commercials and kind of uh, trade Mark, uh, like like he's advertising items all the time. He, he seems like a, a soulless actor instead of someone that's really trying to become an artist. Yeah, that's a, yeah, and 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 the frame show or the 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 framework is that he's going on this like live talk show hosted by uh, Brooke Shields, and he's silhouetted in order to hide what is this like you know this shadow of clearly some sort of monster, and she's yeah. talking about. Tell us your story about your disfigurement that made, you know, kids previously who were in love with you now like shriek in terror. And he starts telling this story and it it begins with him accepting this five million dollar sponsorship contract from William Sadler and his evil imposing boardroom uh, of the mega conglomerate known as EES or everything except shoes. (laughs) And even the logo is like a crossed out shoe in it. They were like, we just we refuse do not to sell shoes. shoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which has an incredible uh, body horror gag payoff at the end of the film. Yes, um, yes. But this boardroom is filled with these like old men uh, puppets that he literally like levers around <laughs> with, the, with a little controller. They're, they have like little strings on their hands that he like Pinocchio puppet styles them to vote for all the choices that he and wants they, to do. They also, like, throughout the film, they have to move them to certain places and stuff. So they'll be shown, like, chairs, but they're strapped to the chairs and they're falling over and things. They're basically just, like, dead old men that they control. It's very funny. Yes, and they are trying to promote this uh, very controversial toxic fertilizer that William Sadler argues to uh, Ricky Coogan that it, it will save America's struggling farmlands, and it's called Zygrot 24. And he's like, look, Ricky, we need you to defend our country from these radical environmentalists who are ruining this country. And he's like, you know, I heard that shit's been banned, man. He's like, you know, you know only in the U.S. and <laughs> Europe. and uh, to dissuade him they're doing these things because because you know you can tell that ricky's like i don't know man this sounds dangerous this sounds weird and and uh they're offering two million dollars and they're like we hear you ricky five million dollars you know they're they're making this pitch to him that you know will you sell your soul to the devil for money um essentially and he travels to santa flan to sell these chemicals and uh you know alex winter he really does get to play up how much of just an asshole la actor that nobody would ever want to be around he is he's he's cruel to his friends he's evading his super fan this kid who we were talking about uh called stewie gluck um who uh who even even the kid is like i don't recognize you anymore ricky you know (laughs) every everyone's tearing up because they're like man you've totally sold your soul man he's like don't worry kid deep down I'm still good. And he even does like that, like animated voice with it and everything. Yeah. It's, it's Alex 
Winter, I'm you know, di- good. Like, yeah, writing and directing and starring in this, like this is just a pure his sensibility, and he nails it. I really wish he yeah. got to do this more often in his career. No, I I totally agree. Like having seen Bill and Ted, where he's kind of doing almost, which is interesting because he's exaggerated in Bill and Ted, but this one he's doing it ten times more. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's absolutely brilliant and hilarious to watch. And I love that even those scenes too, like where they they kind of have some some recognition of his characterization. Uh, they undercut it immediately by by abusing the small child <laughs> by hitting him with a cart <laughs> and letting Ricky just kind of smile and go on with his day and not think about it any longer. Yeah, literally um, laugh out loud at the kid being thrown out of the airplane via the like escape hatch and then like falling to his death onto a farm. But obviously this is an incredibly absurd movie. So the kid doesn't die. He just lands. And he goes, hey, I'm OK. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I also love that they partner him up like one of his friends is just a total like pervert. Um, so I, I just enjoy the, the the commentary of like the asshole rich Ricky actor guy. And then his of course, his his confidant, his best friend is a is a total pervert. That's just along for the ride. I'm like, that's Hollywood right there, baby. That's what it is. Yes. He, he has so many jokes about his Rodney. I, I when we eventually get to the section where they start t- turning them into monsters. I love that his his friend Ernie uh, played by Michael Stoyanov. His uh, his line is, yo, could you give me a bigger Rodney? And they <laughs> yeah. were like. Um, I, I forget what he says too. He's like, I'm not a miracle worker kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think he's introduced um, with like literally the first frame he gets in is he's got a, like a hand prop in his pants and he's just smacking women around with it. Like that, that's the introduction to this character. So. Yeah. And it's one of those movies that fits so many absurd gags into it so fast. It's actually hard to like catalog them. Like I was actually having a hard time taking notes watching this because you want to just sit there and enjoy it and like enjoy the gags. But you actually have to pause it to be like, man, that was a complex gag for a five second like throwaway thing. And they and they find it in every single kind of shot. This is one of my favorite things that like what does separate, in my opinion, the best comedies from mediocre comedies is um even finding jokes in the stuff that other people wouldn't be able to find jokes in. And there's one great example in this uh, plane sequence when the kid falls out of the plane, they're landing in this, you know, Santa Flan, you know, this fake Latin American country. And in another comedy, especially a studio one, there's a very typical second unit shot that happens in this film of the plane landing. And you would see this in every movie. It's just it's establishing they're in a new country. The text comes up saying where they are. It's it's a you know, it's a very meat and potatoes kind of shot that you include Mm -hmm. because you need to put it there so that the audience follows that they have landed. They know where they are. They're grounded. Literally, the way that this movie does it is it starts with them doing voiceover about all of like the hot sex they're about to have now that (laughs) they've landed in this amazing country. And the second unit shot is of the plane landing. The text comes up saying we're in Santa Flan. And then it just explodes <laughs> on impact. And, and you're like, you, briefly, you're like, what? That's that's not the way that you would film like an intense explosion shot. And then it literally like whip pans over to them. And they're like, wow, glad we weren't on that plane because it was the plane that landed <laughs> right after them. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those films, too, that it's like because it's so it's so fast and it's, it's constantly moving. Like, like we said with credits too, this is about like 75 minutes, really this movie. Yes. Um, and right away, as soon as they make that joke, they, he, he looks up and there you go. You see the next co-star, which is, um, the, um, 
uh, Megan Ward, I believe. And, yeah, Julie, uh, who's playing one of the radical environmentalists who is protesting uh, EES and Ricky Coogan uh, yeah. already at the country. So then he has to like disguise himself as an incredibly injured, bandaged man to like fall into her arms and be like, oh, yeah. help me, Miss Protester. I also hate Ricky Coogan. And yeah, EES. and this is 20 <laughs> seconds after the gag you just saw. And then pretty much immediately after that, they decide to go on the uh, on the road together. And then I would say probably a minute later it's revealed that it's Ricky and that he's not in a body cast and then they start to fight. Like, yeah, he gets so just, angry that she says that she likes Christian Slater as an actor better than Ricky Coogan that he has to right. be like, oh, fuck you. Like, he has to reveal himself and expose yeah. himself for being a weird perv. Um, it's uh, like, it, that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's, this is within a three minute span. Like, it's just crazy how much information is constantly doled out to you while doing gags and just keeping the whole story moving. And it's um, like, it's, it's incredibly fast paced. One of the most fast paced movies I've ever seen. Yeah, this is this is one of those things that does really work for comedy where I've, yes. I, you know, re- some of the best sitcom writers have always kind of talked about this, too, that when sometimes when you are limited to fitting into like a 23 minute slot or 22 minute slot with commercials, like you are forced to just mile a minute, gag a minute. You are yeah. forced to, you know, really just push your best stuff into as tight of a package as possible. And I do think that, yeah, it, there's probably some stuff that was cut from this that it sucked that the studio made them do that. But also, yeah, yeah there, there's part of me that goes, man, would it have the same kind of uh, exhausting pacing that it has yeah, as a result. Would it, would it, would I literally be like almost like, you know, some people I think say that this is, it's so fast and exhausting. They actually don't laugh at it that much because it, mm. it doesn't even leave them room to breathe or to laugh at it. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and yeah, to me, that's not really a flaw. That's just, it, yeah, I'm just, either. I'm literally laughing like the entire time. Like this is, this is a, uh, I am smiling watching it almost basically the entire time. And the gags are, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, chock full and sometimes interacting with each other and you have a gag inside of another gag or something like that. Like it is, it's, it's really, really ridiculous. And it it basically really kicks in on their drive when they start seeing those billboards for this Elijah Z Scruggs local sideshow circus freak show called Freakland. And it has a, a billboard for the human worm and a billboard for the dog boy. And, um, you can and, and you can tell the amount of money they spent on this. Like they built those billboards, man. Like it's. Cra- I wish I. I wish yeah, I could every, have one. Every single set seems seems completely built from scratch because even, I mean, well, even it's the Freakland set, that huge crane shot as they pull up with the neon sign yeah. and like the giant and spinning like Randy Quaid head that they have. Even small, I hope Randy Quaid owns that and keeps it in his house. Oh hell yeah, that would be amazing, right in his backyard. <laughs> Uh, even like small things like um, when they're approaching the the, the freaked uh, area and they see the the big sign that says freaks and it's like pointing this way um, they the camera then does a, a huge like 10 second zoom into a small place in the corner where it's like trademarking the certain uh, like the copyright yes. of freaks or whatever and it's just it it's a, it's just another example of like it could have been a simple establishing shot of just like you're here it's we've already made the billboard joke but no they just add another little thing where the even the camera is a part of it where it zooms in and it takes the time to actually zoom and not just cut to it um it's uh it's great 
Yeah, yeah, and I and I love this whole introduction to Quaid, where they show up and they're like, "Hey, this place is kind of dead and it's kind of like lame and rinky dink. Like, where are the fucking weirdos?" And Randy Quaid just like bursts out of his shed. He's like, "No weirdos here, you know. Yeah. We got mutants, we got genetic nightmares, we got like children from hell, twisted masses of living, breathing, tormented flesh, certainly, but no weirdos." <laughs> and he's like, he's like this mix of like carny proprietor, but also like mad scientist and yeah. uh, immediately. Immediately they're insulting him to like, well, yeah, I mean, you just seem like a regular old dumb shit redneck to me as he's like creepily inviting them into his private show in, in his rusty shed. And I love that in order to, you know, be less of an asshole than Ricky is like uh, Julie has to be like, you know, you know, we would love to see your freak show. You know, I understand that you don't traffic in misery. You just show us a side of ourselves that we don't want to look at. You know, you've built a mm-hmm. monument to the variety and the innovation of nature. And it, it's funny, like, it's just like, obviously they are trying to, you know, like make fun of her politics a little bit, but at the same yeah. time, they are just 100% capturing what they're doing with the movie sensibility as well. Being like, yeah, look at the level of creativity and innovation that goes into something just absolutely fucking repulsive. There's another line later in the film that really gets at this too, where Ricky is like, I've been in show business all my life. You know, the public does not want to see disgusting, depraved, violent filth. And like this movie is like literally a counterpoint to these lines and being like, look at this fucking crazy shit. Because as it turns out, he doesn't just exhibit this freak show. He uses his tasty freaks machine <laughs> to inject people with this controversial fertilizer, Zygrot 24, and realize the human flesh into this bizarro artistic vision of his. And at one point he describes it as, imagine Kevin Costner, but he's a, a peach grub who can fart Blue Dano. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, and, what's uh, interesting he, too is watching him like be so incredibly excited about every single time he freaks anybody. Um, like even yes. the line before he does it, he's like, "Who wants to get freaked first? Like that kind of thing. Yeah, and he's just so <laughs> excited about it. And you know, you're supposed to be in a sense worried for the characters, but because of the, the just the absolutely wacky tone and how you kind of know because you've seen like the Toad Man at, at this point that the makeup is going to be pretty awesome. And that is just even that's a small taste when you see the toad man compared to what you see with like the worm guy, the dog. Boy, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the it's cow, crazy. Um, what they turn Alex Winter into. Um, but you as no, an yes. audience member are like just as excited as Randy because you're kind of like, I, you know, this is bad for the these main characters. But I cannot wait to see all this just grotesquery on screen ready to go. Um so that's kind of yeah. fun too. It's 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 you're you're kind of a part of <laughs> their transformation in that sense. You want to see yeah, it. Yeah, the, the the goopy like pastel colored like acid that he's like rubbing on them to turn mm-hmm. uh, he turns Julie and Ernie into a conjoined twins, though not briefly before turning them into a giant gumby that masturbates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which speaks to and a giant gumby, gumby like, masturbating. It is the, it is the actual <laughs> model of Gumby and everything like that. So it's hundred percent Gumby. That's almost like a Ralph Bakshi joke. That's like yeah. the kind of thing that he would do in, in, in his, uh, the way that he u- tried to use like, uh, the Disney characters and shit like that. Totally. Where it was almost like, how can I just like use these things people know of in a different context and just make them disgusting? Yeah. Um, yep. but he turns Elijah, uh, into a, uh, half, 
reptilian hump hunchback like goopy guy because he runs out of um uh zygrot halfway through um transforming him and he calls him the beast boy and the makeup effects on his like half beast boy appearance where he has like green juice that just will just squirt out of his forehead yeah um and 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 and, uh winter's physicality at doing these almost like caveman style like runs like he's like an ape or something like that and yeah he kind of leans over to one side and it's interesting too because you can tell the prosthetic takes over like not even half it's like three quarters of his mouth um to the point where i think they had to adr the majority of his his dialogue because you can even tell sometimes when he's delivering lines the dude can barely open his mouth because the prosthetics are so heavy on his face they're so good but they seem incredibly uh heavy and and kind of yeah those creature effects once again screaming mad george the god but also uh steve johnson also worked on these two who's the guy who did uh dead heat oh Um, so you have like you have like a pretty amazing crew and and supposedly most of this 12 million dollar budget did basically go to pulling off these visual effects and set pieces and you can't tell like it's 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 crazy like it's so disgusting looking at Alex Winter that Julie and Ernie literally have this extended spray hose vomit gag where they are conjoined <laughs> twins in the full outfit like split down the middle and everything and on both sides they're just vomiting out um, in response to him and Alex Winter's just like man I wonder if they're still casting for Gremlins 3 you know yeah. like maybe <laughs> maybe I could get a role in that and, and, and then he meets obviously all the other incredible makeup effect uh, creatures and all the other unlucky mutants uh including one ortiz the dog boy played by keanu reeves who I, I i can't remember exactly why but he is uncredited in this for some sort of contractual oh, reason okay, yeah. so he wasn't allowed to promote the movie or be included on the poster or anything like that but he's in a decent amount of the movie and yeah. very very committed like they said at the q a that he was in that makeup and he was really in that makeup Every day he was on set, hours in that chair getting put in that makeup, and he was a trooper, and he really did it. And and Keanu is like ridiculous in this role, yeah. Full out, like his his foot will just come into frame so that he can like scratch his fleas. He spends half the movie chasing a squirrel. Um, he's and very committed he's, to this like funny kind of. I don't even know. It's like an Eastern European accent or something like that. And yeah. um, and and just has a ton. Even with all the makeup, has a ton of like facial stretching and and kind of uh, just a really good facial contorted uh, performance that he puts on and everything like that. Uh, he's very committed. I, I, I appreciate it so much. <laughs> yeah. His and, buddy and Alex Winters. Yes. And other uh, he he introduces us as the leader of the freaks to uh, through like a movie trivia game show where he's asking questions about Exorcist 2, which is just a random gag. Yeah. He, uh, he he introduces us to the rest of the uh, freaks, who is the nosy, the nose man, who is just a guy with a prosthetic nose like that's Huge. bigger than his skull. He's just <laughs> sneezing all the time. Uh, you have cow, a boy who is an anthropomorphic, uh, what looks like an animatronic like cow costume apparently played by john hawks is apparently in there which is funny (laughs) yeah you have uh the bearded lady uh who's played by mr t uh which is uh, you know uh uh, such a like a limited cameo gag that i'm very curious why he even accepted it but it is funny he's pretty committed to it for the the moments that he gets on screen and he does Uh, make he he gets like funny jokes too where like they'll randomly cut to him Mm -hmm 
doing hair and and just being like just have fun with it like that kind of thing and it's ripped mr t so i i did kind of well, yeah like because it, yeah it, it, it suggested that like the guy like basically forced him to uh you know like switch his gender but he's yeah. actually like pretty happy in it is kind of the joke he's right. actually like you know he's actually like he he's like i'm i i like being a woman you yeah. know, I, I I find this an enjoyable existence actually, and my beard looks great. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but you also get introduced to Sockhead, who is this like dirty sock hand puppet him. cookie monster who is hilarious. There's an that incredible gag when he's doing his performance, and someone like pulls the sock off, and it's just a, a third hand underneath, and everyone goes, "Hey, he doesn't have a sock for a head." He's a hand, it's and everyone a, just like literally—they're <laughs> booing. It's still—it's so funny that it's still like an insane mutation, but they're like, "That's not what we fucking paid for." <laughs> exactly. So uh, funny. Uh, you know, th this movie is also because it's like a, such a delightful, zany whiplash between high and low brow humor. Yeah. Uh, it is not against a recurring extended fart gag by a guy called the Eternal Flame, who <laughs> most of his jokes are just he's sitting in the background of a scene and you can hear him farting through the entire scene. That's literally like the only reason he's in the, he's in the movie. <laughs> That's his entire characterization. I love it. Yeah. So, so to, to just throw that in between like what is also a pretty gruesome satire on like Hollywood's relationship to corporate America and like outsourced environmental destruction, which is, you know, still in, in the movie as well. So it's just, you know, like it, it, it's very funny to have a gag like that. You also have Rosie, the pinhead who uh, is just just yells, <laughs> does a lounge, just yells. She, she gets introduced to do a lounge singing routine. <laughs> that's just her screaming and whacking her head with the mic. <laughs> Um, there's I the frog man who's just a guy in a scuba suit. And I can't remember. I, I have a feeling they said they mentioned in the Q and a that this guy was like meant to be a more, a bigger like post-production effect and they got cut of money. So they just left it in and they thought it was hilarious because he's just a guy in a scuba suit it or something. Funny. It, it kind of reminded me of, in, in fact, I can I can only think of this one example, but I've been seeing it more in like modern comedy, where if they have a group, there's always just this like one normal guy compared to everyone yeah. else. Like Deadpool two did it, um, and I think a couple others that I've seen. I just can't remember the exact examples, but it was that that made me think of that. The moment they cut to the guy in the scuba suit, and he's like one of the only normal looking guys, and they never really go back to him at all. I thought that that was very funny. Yeah, and, and all of the makeup on these characters for the most part, but especially like Dog Boy, Nosy, the, the human worm is like particularly oh, uh, incredible. Like he is, that guy is just fully in that giant worm suit and he's, you know, he's nerdy, he's got the glasses, he's kind of like the older guy. The guy who, his backstory was that he like legit studied worms and was like an academic and then he ironically got turned into one. And yeah. that's one of the that's one of the funny things. They keep doing these flashbacks where they're like, well, that makes sense. You know, like that's what a crazy, evil, mad scientist would do. He'd be like, oh, you want to be a worm? Hey, eh? you like worms, huh? You know, but mm -hmm. the other stories are so funny where it's like the guy where it's sockhead, And he's just like, yeah, I met the guy and now I have a sock for a head. And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't tell stories very well <laughs> or the or the cutaway to the hammer and the and it's just literally like the, the, the hammer and it goes into a wordless flashback where he was like previously i was a wrench you know and he was so happy as a wrench 
Yeah, like it's it's incredible. Also, just the fact that they know that some of the um, the makeup effects in itself are just funny. Like the sock guy is very hilarious. So what they do yes. just in his look because he's got the he's got a very normal human body. Um, of a dude that's like pretty tall, it seems too, like like a six three, six four kind of guy. But then he just has that um, skinny sock head, and they'll do these like close cutups of him reacting to things. And because it's the sock head, and they have just like googly eyes glued onto him and a little tongue, that's the reaction shot that you get, and it makes me laugh every fucking time. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, well, that's just it. Is it, it and it, the gags really just start to accumulate because yeah. it's, some of them are throwaway and they're just random and they happen on the side. Some of them, it's like, no, it's funny every time you cut back to sock head. It's yeah. fun, and, and everything that ends up happening with him is 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 great. And I think that that's something that will work for, for people or it won't because every once in a while the movie is totally committed to derailing itself for a stupid joke, even for like a few seconds. Like it will yeah. just be like like that one when they're being turned into the monsters and they're like hey you're not supposed to have those chemicals like that's illegal you know and he's like yeah well what about these and it's just like this crazy dutch angle push in on him holding like ramada in towels because <laughs> he stole towels from the ramada in you right. know and, <laughs> and and like the movie will literally derail itself for three seconds to throw in a gag like that and for me i found that incredibly charming because yeah. in, in 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 certain ways the, the, that's the heart of the movie like the visual the visual and physical gag within a subplot is what you maybe would try to come to this movie for like when the subplot about Stewie who forms a telepathic connection with Ricky over the course of the film and comes back in the, the climax to kind of save the day um, but but early on he's just like this floating nuisance near Ricky's head and uh, you know he keeps trying to like swat him away like he's like a fly or something and you have cow cowboy being like hey man you know don't turn away your soul mate you know lots of us freaks got esp nosy can smell the future sockheads got espn and he's just watching sports you know just cut away to him watching sports um but 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 the throwaway gags in this sort of telepathic connection where it goes to stewie's perspective is it's like you know all the movie memorabilia of the art alternate reality of the super fan where like ricky he has a poster of rain man and robocop but starring ricky um or when he tries to break the story to the various newspapers in la and it's like favorite gag maybe yeah he's like ricky coogan is a mutant in south america and he goes to every single he goes to like the the la times he goes to usa today and it just turns into a montage of him being thrown through frosted glass windows every <laughs> our doors every time where it's just like i'll show myself the door boom and you just see a kid literally fly through a fucking window like this stunt kid man oh yeah it's it's unreal that, that was probably my favorite gag because like i said they've done the whole like they've been abusing this kid the in, the entire runtime but to watch him like five times in a row get sent through glass is unbelievably funny and i do like that they they just accent it at the end by having him learn that that's how you are supposed to just leave a newspaper company so he throws himself (laughs) through the last pane of glass um i was losing it that was one of my favorite moments in the in the whole thing and again that kid is is committed i don't know i can't remember actually if if the uh if it shows him getting up and it was actually the kid that went through it every once in a while. But regardless, it's such a, it's such a funny bit. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 great because he's he's trying to break the news on that. You know, Ricky Coogan is now a mutant being held, you know, prisoner at this uh, cavalcade of atrocities and and monstrosities and being forced to, you know, be a be a tap dancing performer. It's kind of like that section of Pinocchio when he gets turned into a slave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for 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 entertainment. Um but the uh, the actual performance section of of this I I like as well because it's that it's that bit where the worm is basically telling him, you know, you must turn your hardship into inspiration, Ricky. You're an actor. Your body is your instrument, which is such a great line to include in like a body horror film. It's something Cronenberg also believes too. Is like the body is expressive. The body says something about you. And he was like, you must play your body, like you know, in your tragic symphony for the world. And so everyone else's show are just like these like you know what you would see at like a sideshow it's all these routines where all the audiences are just paying to laugh at these freaks and then he goes up and he performs richard the third to a tearful roaring audience and there's like (laughs) this little there's like the translation for dummies who don't understand shakespeare there's literally subtitles beneath it being like i'm ugly i never get laid you know doing this kind that and everyone's cheering up and being like oh my god this is incredible i love that it's uh, not a stretched out moment either like he does the whole shakespeare paragraph and the only two translations are literally that it's just i am ugly i never get laid (laughs) that's fantastic i also like that they they the, the, the first time they show the professor the professor of Oxford and he's introducing, he's like, we have put uh, subtitles so that you can understand for the layman or whatever. And then yeah. later on when he's doing actually more ridiculous things like a part of the riot and everything, they still pop up his his title like Oxford professor or whatever. Yeah, every, well, it, it, yeah it's, it's incredible, especially during the big finale when it pops up and he's sitting there being like, kill him! Like he's yes. there enjoying like the crazy monster wrestling show at that point. <laughs> He's literally this is this is the movie saying like we are going to convince people who are only into highbrow art to turn into that guy to be like let's fucking go let's see this fucking crazy shit because when it explodes man it explodes because you get this crazy gremlin looking dude performing Shakespeare in a club where a guy in a corner is making out with a goat. Um, you know, so you get crazy wacky images like that. And he he does anticipate that his his corporation, the everything except shoes, is going to come and save him at some point. But instead they show up and the guy goes, dude, you're kind of ugly now. Like, we don't <laughs> actually want you for this endorsement deal because, you know, like you're not actually going to, you know, sell this message of even though he was literally directly harmed by the product he was supposed to be yeah. uh, endorsing. And he gets so angry at this that he decides to go on like a violent rampage. And the bit, man, where this gets gory and he tears the head off of the corporate suit. Yeah. He literally throws it into the lens where it explodes blood all over the lens. And previously, what was like this performance, you know, where everyone was kind of well behaved is suddenly a chaotic, bloody massacre of people stomping on each other, people impaling each other. That dude who uh, the one protester guy yeah. who he, he's he's a throwaway gag yeah. in the protest shot because he is the guy who shows up where he's got the I like Ike, which is like a sign for Eisenhower. So he's like he's been in the protest movements for long enough that he has an Eisenhower sign and he gets literally like gutted through like his torso and out his back 
with yeah. it and he's literally gushing blood everywhere and it's one like three second shot like just yeah. the commitment to just establishing this guy's character and then the gruesome payoff for this character like he's probably on screen for like 10 to 15 seconds yeah and and you know it, it pays off yeah but they connect the shots so well that you still remember him being there so when you see him the next time and he's just and the, the thing is too that i love the physical performance they went with the, the, how they directed him because he just kind of sits there while he's impaled and everyone is just chaotically running around him and screaming their faces off it's it's so uh, like absurd and, and violent. It's literally like splatter calming. movie Looney Tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny. It's it's that was one of my favorite gags too. I actually wrote that one down. That one was great. Yeah, that one that one was great. And uh, I also love that old guy with the video camera who <laughs> I, I think they were trying to make the gag that he's like a pornographer or something because he's looking at this chaos. And he goes, he's going, what's the matter? Are you all afraid of a little rough stuff like welcome yeah. to show business? And he comes back later for another gag line where he's like, I haven't seen a stampede like this since the opening night of Ishtar, which is a gag for like 10 people. Yeah, you know? like people that, who are really into like Elaine a really, May. Um, unpopular film like people that was were, a box office bomb right, and kind of right. killed the lane may's career uh, yeah. unfortunately um and uh yeah like this is just such a random line to give to to give to him and yeah just the the crazy zooms that they're doing with the cameras the crane shots that they're doing winter screaming and spraying goo out of his head elijah scrug just like yelling now that's entertainment you know yeah oh yeah <laughs> and i think this is when they decide because this is kind of the um it propels him to make the decision to try to leave, which results in the amazing milkman gag that I laughed so hard at. Like, so he's trying to, he's, he's basically, he's trying to escape and he, he crashes and he, he, uh, the, uh, the milk truck that he's, that he's in and, uh, he runs into the rest of the gang and it's all the freaks and they're all dressed up as milkmen as well. And, and that, like they had the same idea, they were in sync. And I just, my favorite line is um, when he's just like, 12 is plausible, 13 is too many. Yeah, <laughs> Keanu chews that line. He's like, 12 milkmen, that's plausible, 13 is just silly, you know? <laughs> It's so good. And just the visual the whole time, because they actually take this conversation kind of seriously because they're, you know, trying to escape and they've established that this is a dangerous place for them and all of that. But the whole time you're just looking at Yeah, which at by the way, they did. Freaks. They did because Ricky has the first idea of being trapping the milkman in a trap door, stealing his outfit and making his way off the property in the milkman outfit, like mm -hmm. in disguise. But he gets caught by the giant Rastafarian eye. <laughs> Ball henchmen who are wearing Uzis. Uzis and carrying and yeah they're they're carrying Uzis and mm. wearing Converse yes and yes. just they're an insane so practical detail that I'm just like and I mean people might get a little you know uh, annoyed at like the fact that they're trying to do some like racial humor with the eyeballs like wearing the hats and doing the accents like they're doing everything these are Rastafarian henchmen um, but they're also just giant uh, eyeballs like with the <laughs> Yeah. Like you could actually see the the veins in them and everything like that. And they and are it's also like quite the a visual gag. Yeah. And I could I could see it's like it's a little bit maybe maybe dated in a sense. It doesn't do anything really stereotypical, luckily. It's mostly just like and they, they kind of pitch up maybe, the voice a little maybe bit. Maybe holding to make it the cartoonish. giant joint in the other hand is a little 
Oh, did I didn't even notice that actually? <laughs> they do. One of them when they come in later, one of them actually has it in the middle of his eyeball, like he's smoking it out of his pupil. Oh yeah, you know, I did notice that, but I thought it was very funny. So I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally, I can totally get it. It's a little, it's a little. It's one dated, of those things where someone might be feels, offended by it, but but again, the pure practical effect commitment to it, you have yeah. to respect it on some level. I think oh, absolutely, and like, again, they don't do. Um, like, I guess there are a couple visual things, but like, there's no um, super offensive dialogue or anything like that. Most of the time, they just say something like, hey, stop right there, but they have the high pitched, kind of pitched up Rastafarian uh, accent. And then it's just watching two eyeballs chase. And also Keanu doing Reeves the, uh, the Mons, you know, the. Yeah. Uh you yeah. know, doing 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 that kind of stuff. They do get a really fucking great one when because they're the ones who eventually kill um, Sockhead because Sockhead is like freaking out, being like, "We're digging our own graves." He's like yelling and waving waving his noodle arms in the air, yeah. and he just gets slow mo squib blown away yeah, like an, by the by, by the Rasta from, eyes. Like yeah, it's like in a John just, Woo movie or something. Just squibs popping off everywhere and i think one of their one-liners like straight out of like an action movie one-liner is that sock full of holes <laughs> you know man <laughs> oh, which is uh, just i loved them every time they popped up i got us i put uh, put a smile on my face i was losing my mind yeah but 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 that's how he knows that this is dangerous and also yeah. the fact yeah. that he also knows that they're all in danger because the you know the uh uh, Elijah Scruggs saw that bloody massacre and it's like, wow, this is a better show than I've ever put on. I should put this show on every night. So he goes, you know, the, the, the hideous killing machine beast boy is a hit, you know? So you're going to, I'm going to put you up on stage tomorrow night. You're going to kill all your fellow freaks and be reborn from the ashes like a star. And I think that's when he gets the line where he's like, no, I've been in show business all my life. The public does not want to see disgusting, depraved, violent filth like this. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, Wrong. he, 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 get, he eventually gets out and when, he gets out he's like oh my god they're all literally trying to pull the exact same plan that i did and they are they're all in milkman outfits they're all gonna walk <laughs> across the exact same portion of the property and get caught by the rasta eyes and in order to stop them and save them he gets into a west side story switchblade fight with the dog boy um <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and that that Scruggs line that he gets and Randy Quaid, he has two lines in this that actually made me keel over. And one of them is this one, which is, wow, that's a lot of milkmen on one route. No wonder they fight, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is. Just <laughs> and um, the, the the other one is uh, the styrofoam cup one, which is just I th that's such a ridiculous conceived gag in its entirety that it blows me away because uh it, it, it's it's kicked in when um ricky uh evades that fight with dog boy because he gets distracted by a squirrel and literally spends the rest of the movie chasing a squirrel um <laughs> and, and and the rasta eyes are distracted chasing him chasing the squirrel um so they kind of make ricky the sort of de facto leader of the group in this like very funny scene where he actually doesn't come up with the plan like he you know members of the group all together it's like this rousing they're all like town hall meeting where they like we could make an ointment that turns you into like a super freak but like a good one and the worm could dig a tunnel on his way there he's like it's just so crazy it might work you yeah. know how did you come up with this brilliant genius plan and the also this is also the scene where the entire time the fart guy is just farting in the background um, <laughs> right, right. they do like a brief training montage to like butthole surfer glam metal where it's like freaks 
freaks. You know, they're going to get the job done. They're going to pull off this plan. And there's that incredible shot where they dig underneath the toad, too. Uh, It's like a 2D platformer style where the worm is actually digging all the way there. But the gag that kills this entire sequence for me is they break in they're trying to be incredibly quiet and they turn on the machine and it's insanely loud and they're like oh my god we're being so loud and you know elijah is in his you know living room watching tv he doesn't overhear the crazy machine turning on it's like this he's like how does he not hear that it's so fucking loud and they actually find the master volume button too and they just turn it down which is a gag in and of itself that (laughs) it's like the machine doesn't make sound they just had the volume turned up whoops um (laughs) but the way that that gag ends with ricky accidentally being like we got to be quiet from now on. And he knocks over a styrofoam cup off of Elijah's table. It falls to the ground in slow motion. It hits and it goes just a little tiny, like little thud. And immediately huge crash zoom on Elijah's face, sitting in his living room, turning back because he heard that. And he goes styrofoam (laughs) cup. And then that's what alerts him to their presence there. And he has to run in and go and and chase them down. And obviously the kicker of the line too, which is that's bad for the environment. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh man. It's so good. Another gag, uh, uh, one of my favorites from the montage was just the, the simple gag of showing, um, pinhead hammering something on a wall and then it cuts to another angle of her and she's just hammering her own hand into it (laughs) screaming (laughs) at the top of her lungs it's that that really got me um but yeah this 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 whole sequence up to the up to the finale is is fantastic um i another gag that i really like when they start doing all the like infiltration kind of stuff or the heist stuff is when the worm is looking at like it's like they act like they hacked into the the computer system and they're just like my god it's complex and then it cuts to like a digital (laughs) almost jump start grade two game quality menu of just all the freaks in like cartoon grid Yeah, it's like like literally like press the monkey button to turn someone into a monkey you know (laughs) just oh my god it's complex just got me going so hard so yeah, there, and, and and again, this is all in one like five ten minute sequence. Like it's just gag after gag after gag after gag. It's just wild. Yeah, like you 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 almost can't can't keep keep track of it. And one of my favorite examples of what they do too is that they find a way to like set up a gag and find the way that the gag will pay off later. And this section has one of my favorite ones. Um, that's a little it's sort of a spoiler because um, they. Uh, they have to flee so fast out of the laboratory that they actually forget to bring the super freak ointment that's going to turn them into a, a monster that could, you know, sort of like kaiju style, like beat the shit out of the all the bad guys. Um, and Ricky forgets to bring it and they all go, oh, you fucking idiot. Like, Ricky, how did you forget the one thing we did that whole plan for and the whole the hole <laughs> we dug like caved in on itself? And he's like, but I did grab the macaroons <laughs> and, 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 and literally like confetti goes in the air. Balloons are freaking out. They all have a party because he got macaroons and everyone eats macaroons. But there's one side voice gag in this where the worm goes, ah, like, I don't like macaroons. Like, I don't want (laughs) to eat. Like, he's like, I'm not into it. And this comes back because it turns out that the macaroons are actually the cure for the the mutations that they've all been had forced (laughs) on them. Right. 
And so when everyone comes back at the very end of the film and they're not in their monstrous form anymore, literally the worm guy comes out and everyone goes, <gasps> he's still a worm. He didn't get converted back. And he's just like, oh, just a guy, what? Just a guy because he didn't like macaroons, you <laughs> yeah. know, like that. Committed. <laughs> And it's just so funny how like how subtly set up that that gag is earlier in the film, as well as being its own gag that they all freaked out about loving macaroons so much. So it's just again, it's so whiplash and so filled with that, that it's it's really incredible. But the the big finale um, is uh, where there's been this running gag through the whole film of Elijah is on the phone uh, with this guy who's supplying him with the Zygrot. And it's just a guy who just laughs maniacally. And there's literally a gag where he's like, he's actually understanding what he's saying. It's almost like when you're talking to Chewbacca, like Han Solo can understand what he's saying. Elijah can understand the laughing man through the laughs. He's like, can you spell that? And he's like, ha, ha, ha. And he's actually like spelling out what he's saying. Um, Either way, it it all turns out that that was William Sadler, the head of EES. And they have been in bed together the entire time, giving him this Zygrot and using him as like a sort of like experimental indie artist as to to test this out so that they could eventually use it outside of Latin America. Um, And this part of it, when it's all revealed to be one giant corporate conspiracy, one, a gag that killed me, the old geriatric board members who were saran wrapped and clearly like kept in like the back of a cargo ship on their flight over. They get pulled out with a forklift and all four of them are on a forklift being, you know, ridden by like, you know, laborers. And the last one on his chair (laughs) falls off the forklift and like breaks his neck on the back of the loading truck. And it's clearly a dummy, like a real stunt guy didn't do that. Which makes it funny too. Yeah, but like, man, what a what a sight gag to just throw in there. And again, it's like just what would usually be the establishing shot of like the board members are walking into the room and they find a way to fit like an incredibly elaborate, you know, just, you know, violent gag like that in there. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. And not to mention, like just watching the uh, the visuals of this finale in general, it's like you thought you saw the most grotesque makeup that you possibly could, and then they bust out not one, but two, like, eight-foot-tall gremlin creatures that are going to battle it yes. out. It's, it's unbelievable. And these things are gooey. Like, they look so slimy and disgusting, and, and um, like, they don't have the most uh, movement to them, but the way they still capture them, like, is 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 quite effective uh and they still have them like turn around and and look at the camera and stuff like that um it's it's great i I absolutely love watching uh just just the makeup somehow get even crazier in the last 10 minutes yeah yeah and and the way that it's used as like a monstrous expression of what this corporate policy is meant to be right where they have you know these uh, you know, EES shows up and they're talking to Elijah and he's pitching them on like his vision for it is super mega freak world, you know, where he's like, we're going to take we're going to take this like small little venue that I've got and we're going to take it global. We're going to kick Disney's ad, dead ass, you yeah. know. And I, and, and I love that the one corporate guy goes, hey, I liked Bambi. He's like, Bambi sucks. He's like, what about the part where the mother got shot? It's like, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's my um, favorite part. Yeah. That was so, oh so God. good. And and it's so funny because Disney owns the rights to this film now because this is a Fox film. So oh, really? the reason That's this doesn't so have funny. a physical release is because of Disney. And I would hope that at some point with that reference that Disney would consider doing it. Yes, please. Um, 
But uh, the way that they pitch him on how to use the gene machine instead for their interests, which is not to just make this like crazy, monstrous slapstick carnival show. Um, which the movie is is in and of itself kind of doing. But they're like, you could use this same machine, not for artistic purposes like you do, but we can use them to make employees. What about a secretary with six arms to <laughs> answer all those phones? What about a factory worker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, maintain her form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a factory worker with 12 arms, no mouth to talk back, no genitalia or gastrointestinal system to distract him from his work. And that fucking cutaway to the stunned laborers just like reacting to the fact that they're going to like mutilate them to turn them into better workers. It's like, this is what we up. all <laughs> he's like, this is this is what we all dream about, isn't it? And I love that Elijah is like he's even responding to the corporate attitude. He's like, is this like the most imagination you guys have? Where's the fun? Yeah. Where's the spark, the unspeakable evil of it all? And he's like, we got you, man. We're going to put this shit into cosmetics, the military. And why stop there? Let's let's uh, put it in the water supply and create a master race of consumers that we own the copyright on. And then you can he see Elijah just being like, man, this guy's pitch is good. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, we lured him away from Pepsi. <laughs> yeah the corporate humor is actually amazing in this it's great like yeah. i was uh, this whole sequence is hilarious and the fact that it's capped off by william sadler going like full third reich mode and he's like those who dare oppose us will stand knee deep in the blood of their children by the way yeah yeah it, like that line is so incredibly morbid compared to everything else that you've seen in this um like everything else is kind of I mean, that is cartoonishly evil, but it just feels more, uh, it feels like it belongs in a different film when he says that, when he says that specific line. Um, another great gag that I love is when they, they have the two giant gremlins actually fight and the people start like betting money and arguing over what a legal and illegal move in this fight is and stuff like that as if it's like an MMA style (laughs) fight or something like that. It's, um, that, that's a great gag too. Yeah, man, there the, the 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 big monstrous kaiju gremlin smackdown that everyone's like, this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen, and it's literally between Ricky and Stewie because Stewie during that whole corporate meeting runs out with the serum, and he's like, Ricky, I got the serum you were looking for, and of course he's a total klutz, so he trips and falls and smashes it on himself, and the fact that you can actually kind of tell that it's also the Stewie gremlin because all of his features are just the same features as that mad magazine kid. So yeah. it's literally just like, imagine if the mad magazine kid was a gremlin. Yeah. That is uh, that's really a, what it that's is. That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and I like that even in the middle of this, they're like, it, there's, and again, within the fight, there's a ton of gags, but they're like, no, let's throw another gag in there, which is where they pause the entire thing that you're watching so that Brooke Shields can be like, actually, we have to cut to a commercial because you've been talking for like 90 straight minutes. A commercial for machismo. Yeah, which I guess would probably be something that would be based out of like the uh, the idiot box or something like that. Yes, it's very much a cutaway so. kind of infomercial or a commercial kind of thing. Um, but I, I just love And then they go right back into it. They're like, okay, now back to your story. And then you just go back to Randy Quaid bazookoing uh, uh, the CEO uh, board 
and turning them into a yeah, giant turning, sludge. Turning them into a society flesh shoe. shoe yeah. Which yeah. is great fucking payoff for the everything but sh- everything except shoes uh, corporation people to just be like this giant grotesque looking shoe. <laughs> yeah. And then one of my favorite gags too, and this reminds me of something that would be maybe in like the um, the Stella shorts or something, just kind of a very funny, absurd moment, whereas the cow... Uh, who's who's a full-fledged cow, right? We've talked about that. Um, doing a zoom-in, and they're, he's just like, let him into your heart, your heart, your heart. <laughs> your heart. Your heart. <laughs> and he just keeps it just cuts away to him actually saying it. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's, actually happening in his head. I, just, yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, and they add that little like Western twang to his voice, too, and it makes it just slightly funnier. Um, yeah. This finale. Oh yeah, great. T- Toad Guy's head being exploded with dynamite. Uh, the 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 Rasta eyes being uh, taken out by just throwing sand at them, like you're being having sand thrown in your eyes. Like they're yeah. like the amount of visual insanity and like you know like slapstick humor that is so clearly choreographed and had to have been planned out for the visual effects and the makeup and the practical effects like again it's all in the name of incredibly stupid like simple humor that maybe if someone said it out loud to you you wouldn't think is that funny but again this just sheer directorial commitment to it all um really does sell it like yeah yeah, the idea of giant eyeballs having sand thrown in them is very silly and man, is it like a committed to gag when they finally uh, do this and when they finally do take out Elijah by throwing him in the giant pile of goo. And, you know, they all find out that the the cure was macaroons, uh, was the coconut macaroons that they all ate, which does lead to a great silhouette gag when they go back to the show. And you're like, wait, but he's been silhouetted the whole time as like the monster, the way that you do like an anonymous broadcast of someone. Yeah. And then they go, they just go, Hey, you know, like Brooke Shields, we fixed the lights. And they're like, Oh, finally we're, you know, like 90 minutes into the broadcast and they just turn the lights on. And because he wasn't silhouetted to, to show, hide his appearance, he was just normal the whole time, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, which is awesome. Oh so like that, that that's funny and the fact that uh Keanu the dog boy finally runs onto the show at that point and he catches the squirrel and he's been presumably chasing that squirrel the entire time and when he does catch it he just throws it into the audience and the squirrel starts biting a woman's face off in the audience <laughs> as like a throwaway gag um the FBI showing up this is I guess before they get to the show again but the FBI showing up and just open firing on Randy uh unbelievably funny uh, yes to watch. randy quaid who by the way is disguised as brooke shields and yes. they go well yeah and you know you know what brooke like you know it was it was just it was you he looked just like you except he had monstrous feet the tilt down to brooke shields having monster feet yeah and then they just open <laughs> and, fire like two or three times into her to, like i think it's the the two co-stars the um uh megan or yeah, Megan Ward. Yeah, Megan Ward, and then uh, the guy who plays Ernie yeah. both take turns getting to shoot her down, like she's a slasher villain who keeps coming back to life. And that's also the freeze frame of the movie as she comes back like Jason style, yeah. you know, to try and kill them all. That's great, and it's just insane to watch Brooke Shields get lit up like that. <laughs> yeah, not 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 how you how you like again. We've described so much stuff that happens in this. And I'm sure we've even still like missed some stuff that happens in it. And, and we've been talking for it. I think we're probably going to end up going longer than the actual movie is. So like it's, it is crazy how fast and intense this whole thing is. So yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, can't uh, can't can't overstate that even by the finale, it's still finding a way to throw a gag in every shot in every like single second that it can manage one. And yeah, uh, like the pervert yeah. character learning about feminism and then having a woman just punch him in the face. That's that's fun, too. That's just great. Yeah. Um, and that's how it yep. ends. I do like they all go. We've learned a lesson that infringing on the subtle perfection of Earth's natural order is only going to create havoc, which is obviously a very hilarious lesson to be learned because this is the most like havoc based movie I've maybe ever seen. Oh, yeah. Havoc is like it's is is it's is its attitude. <laughs> and I like the uh, it, it's almost a gag in itself. I don't know if it was due to things that were cut or if it's just like a little bit of we don't care about this this love interest very much but it's just part of these comedies so we'll throw it in there but I actually found it funny when they end up kissing because it's so underdeveloped that it was just like another gag almost to wrap up the typical that's true that you're, you're like watching. wait did they end up even ever liking each other at some point yeah, but no it's, it's very possible that it was cut yeah that's the thing I don't think there's any scene like it could honestly have been a funny scene because he would have had to deal with the fact that Ernie is beside her the entire time because they're newly conjoined twins um but yeah it, it, I don't think there is one scene besides the beginning when he's trying to like trick her that he's not Rick and then that's it and so for them to wrap it up with like oh yeah they're, they kiss and you he get gets the, the big, girl yeah I just I, yeah I actually thought it was a funny gag even if it was on purpose or not yeah 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 and, and who knows yeah maybe it was just meant to be that's what the cliche is and yeah. the joke is that they didn't set it up for a set in fact every scene that they had between them probably uh would uh, you would assume that it would not be yeah <laughs> the path that the yeah, movie the, is going to take because it doesn't he, make any sense she pretty much hates him and then like the other the only other time you get interaction with them is when she vomits from the sight of him and uh maybe a couple other moments but they're never love they're never romantic so i yeah it was kind of funny yeah, yeah, but this is uh, this is a, a very honestly solid to high uh, four for me if we're pivoting yeah. towards reductive um, rating round uh, again. I, I think that Stern and Winter and Burns, all three of them, do a really incredible job of cashing in on the popularity of Bill and Ted, and you know, and giving people some of that like stoner rocker comic absurdity that people who like that like it. Like you got William Sadler as a crazy corporate goon making silly faces. You've got Keanu doing a really committed performance as the dog boy so like i i i could imagine people who like bill and ted like the, the, the like would oh, would enjoy this. this and they, yeah but but apparently that was what they were saying test audiences kind of rejected it and that was why the studio got cold feet because they thought they were like green lighting a bill and ted spinoff or something and that i guess wasn't the impression a lot of audiences at the time got from it which to be fair is maybe because of how winter has managed to take that sensibility and merge it just entirely with his own weirdo one and, yeah. and do it in like it's much more vulgar it's arguably maybe even more stupid uh <laughs> it has like a sketch comedy uh sense of uh you know sort of like schizophrenic uh, uh mindset pacing. about how it approaches humor yeah. and 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 pacing and obviously they are doing this sort of experimental punk noise rock MTV thing to it as 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 well, where they were trying to be like, how do we get the demented outsider youths of the 1990s to watch a mainstream comedy movie like the people who are into the butthole surfers and Ren and Stimpy and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And uh, in my opinion, they couldn't I don't think you could do like that's such an ambitious thing to try to pull off. And I think they did it about as best as you could do in terms of really spending all of that studio money 
like really truly getting outsiders who have weird comic sensibilities to make this. The visual style is incredibly anarchic and wild and, you know, totally like Burns when he was there talking about what they were taking inspiration from in the writing. And he was going off about like, yeah, we were reading nonstop mad magazine. We were, you know, uh, mainlining Monty Python. We were going back to the Zucker brothers with things like naked gun and airplane. And like, you can tell all of that is in here. And also, just somehow a bunch of friends got to $12 million to just like make the weirdest thing they could possibly make. And uh, we've already laid out a lot of the weird details, but like, man, the monster and creature effects, the fucking oozy eyeball henchmen, (laughs) the absurd sort of like slapstick humor of violence against the kid. Um, This is just like, I really don't understand the original Fox exec who thought this would do anything other than just like freak 90s parents out and be like, you can't, my kids can't fucking watch this. This is, this is going to make them like, remember 90s parents thought like the Simpsons were going to make their kids rebellious like Bart Simpson. Yeah. What would 90s parents have thought this would do to their fucking kids? Like, it's just, (laughs) you know. Like, oh like they were like, no, 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 this is like, this is going to fucking turn them into monsters and they are, you know, and so again, so to do all of that and fit in Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson, visual sensibility, body horror and science fiction elements, and also do, you know, a, a total, uh, you know, throwback to the Todd Browning freaks movie, which is an incredible freaks in and of itself in terms of its concept and its premise and its heart about feeling for these guys and wanting them to overcome their corporate overlords and all of that. Like it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it is a a, a pretty incredible movie with uh, lots of blink and you miss it uh, gags genuinely and uh, incredible staging and everything. So check it out if you haven't seen it. Yeah. The, uh, the, the gags per minute hell, like the gags per every 10 seconds is pretty incredible in this. Um, and the makeup effects are, are clearly where most of the budget went. And I think it was a good decision to do that. It really shows that the performances once they're in the makeup, I mean, even before the makeup, they're completely exaggerated and cartoonish, but, uh, they, they really commit to once they get inside those suits and just have to go absolutely insane. Um, I loved see, watching Keanu as the dog boy. That's just, it's such a weird, uh, such a weird performance and uh it's it's awesome that he was committed enough to do it i it's because of the contractual stuff that he was going through i imagine he did it because him and alex winter are such good friends or at least were at the time it seems like they still are um but i just it you can tell that they're having an absolute blast every single uh scene that they're in together and um i just i, I love seeing that especially because keanu i think at this time would have been quite quite big so for for him to do something like this is just awesome i just i love his heart um uh yeah i think alex winter and tom stern have a have such a good uh vision for like grotesque crude punky humor um i I, it it stays true to that form the entire runtime the pacing is is just non-stop it's in your face it's very aggressive in that way uh, it's it's very much like a punk rock song uh, and i think that that's awesome um yeah I, I i don't have too much else to add honestly i i think this is just uh i would highly recommend it it's a very easy watch um once again it's like 75 minutes if you were including credits and if you just want to 
kind of shut off and and laugh. This is this is definitely the one for you, I think. As long as you can handle the kind of uh, the crude humor, if that's your style, then you're gonna love this. If if it is maybe too much for you, this might actually be overbearing or or, or overwhelming. Yeah, I, um, I could but, see someone just absolutely hating this thing. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, not me, it, but I could it see is it. You know? Silly, <laughs> like it is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's not trying to be in any way serious, even it's commentary, although, you know, it's, it is saying things about, um, you know, the, the, the corporations and ownership and, and um, kind of individuality and stuff. Like, it's not trying too hard to make those points. It's really just trying to entertain you. And, uh, and, and, it, and it does it through and through, at least for me. So yeah, it's a, it's a solid four, maybe even a strong four out of five. I think it's a lot of fun. Hell yeah. Well, that'll wrap it up, I think, for Freaked. We're going to be right back talking about, again, the movie that, like, hardly anybody has seen, uh, Frauds. Stick around. Oh, dear. to jail. What do you want? He's going to break every rule. That man gives me the creeps. He's going to use every trick in the book. Mrs. Waits. To uncover their secret. Detective. He sent the police over this afternoon. He set us up. For Jonathan and Beth, a little dishonesty is about to go. He's not going to stop. All right, we are back and we are talking Frauds, the 1993 Australian absurdist comedy crime thriller film written and directed by Stephen Elliott and starring singer, songwriter, drummer extraordinaire. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Phil Collins, alongside oh, yeah. uh, Hugo Weaving of Matrix and Lord of the Rings fame for a lot of people, and Josephine Burns. Uh, this is our first time talking about Stephen Elliott, who is an Australian filmmaker best known for his drag queen uh, road movie called The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which you mm-hmm. know is, is something actually of a cult film that people might know. It, I mean, not maybe not even a cult film. It got nominated for an Oscar for Best Costume Design. It was a pretty big film even when it came out. Uh, also starring Hugo Weaving, although alongside Guy Pearce um, in uh, that film. And I've never seen it, but it actually sounds quite... Um, uh, interesting and yeah. if uh, the visual sensibility of this film is any indication then I'm definitely um, curious because he actually made this I think uh, before it and it was released after uh, because Priscilla begot uh, got enough uh, like acclaim and attention that they kind of were like see the sophomore feature even though it was technically made first um, <laughs> they're like we're not letting frauds be your first <laughs> yeah uh, but, but, but Stephen Elliott uh, apparently you know uh, he's a playwright he's a music video director uh, based out of Australia, um, which is apparently how he got interested in working with Phil Collins because he met him, uh, or, or sorry, he saw him uh, in an episode of Miami Vice from the second season, which any right. Miami Vice heads will know as uh, Phil the Shill, where he played this uh, coked up British TV personality doing deals in Miami. It's very funny episode he had an excellent hairline for that character um and uh (laughs) many maybe aren't familiar but collins was actually interested in acting uh as long as he was in music if not before he was in music uh and was actually auditioning and doing extra work even as early as uh, the beatles film the hard day's night Mm -hmm. uh, which was before he even signed with genesis um, That's and, uh, obviously his Miami vice role definitely came after the fact that he established the booty soundscape for that show with the pilots, a very iconic use of, uh, in the air tonight. So um, good. 
But I, I, I guess for whatever reason, uh, Stephen Elliott saw him as a good fit for this Roland Coppings character, who is this uh, wacky, sociopathic sort of insurance investigator who uses very outrageous, childish games and gimmicks as part of his job and eventually blackmails this married couple, couple uh, Weaving and Burns, about the accidental killing of their friend during a uh, quote unquote prank gone wrong, which we'll talk about. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, which to him comes off as a very unusual uh, claim. The tagline for this film is uh, he's no ordinary insurance man and you can bet your life on it. Um, <laughs> so that's the that, that's the kind of uh, sort of like pun based tone we're going to be taking. And also it's, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of I will say the uh, visual sensibility. I already said it at the top of the show, but man, this movie is colorful. It is absurd. Yes. People at the time compared it to uh, Beetlejuice, which makes sense just in the sense that it's like it, it like Phil Collins at, at a certain point does come off, start to come off as a supernatural presence who is terrorizing, uh, you know, a, a, a domestic couple, which is very much very similar in terms of uh, set piece structure as Beetlejuice. But also uh, Phil Collins is going full like Pee-wee man-child, uh, except for if Pee-wee was like evil. He wasn't like adorable and making everyone's lives a little bit better and making friends everywhere he went. What if he was just playing like the cruelest, meanest pranks kind of of uh, yeah. of, of, of all time on people, essentially? And they, yeah, we're talking things like he jumps from, you know, just putting glue on your hand and getting a piece of paper stuck to your hand to almost attemptive murder with a vehicle. Like he, he really jumps. Yes. It's he, ridiculous. He jumps back and forth with these pranks. He really has no, uh, <laughs> no, no threshold at all. Um, he does. He does. He just. It seems misery is his entertainment, whether that be through something small or something large. Um, and I love the way that Phil Collins uh, acts or performs this. It, it's incredibly over the top and cartoonish, and it, it matches yeah, it's, the it's, rest it's, it's of such the film. a playful smirk to yes. him. <laughs> Yeah, it matches the rest of the film because, like you said, this thing is incredibly, it's colorful, it's bombastic, it's its um, its very, very hyperbolized, like just with, with even even the way that Hugo Weaving and Josephine Burns uh, um, perform. Uh, jo- Josephine has a little bit more of a, of a grounded, laid-back performance, and Hugo starts there, but then as Phil Collins and Hugo start to go more head-to-head, Hugo starts to become as cartoonish in, in his performance as Phil Collins, and that's very interesting to, to watch and progress. Yeah, well, because part of it, and we'll 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 get to it when we kind of talk about the structure of this. Yeah. But like we we we, we kind of realized by the end of the virtual screening, and especially on the ending of the film, which I think the ending is quite great actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That this this whole movie is structurally like a couple who can't take a joke, and through a series of bizarre home invasions and being terrorized by Phil Collins, they learn to. Uh, laugh <laughs> and, uh, and through the uh, that, the accidental killing of their friend and everything like that too yeah well because that's what we'll talk about because this is technically i guess you would call it like a crime gone wrong farce like yeah. you might even compare it in terms of premise to like you know the kind of heist that like a coen brothers character would try to pull off and then just fail but, miserably yeah yeah totally yeah but it, but it's funneled through this very diabolical and strange and like energetic toy factory kind of like funhouse aesthetic like it has a sort of twinkling danny elfman knockoff score to it yep. it has very animated visuals and big dynamic camera moves which we'll talk about some some very wacky set design including a uh 
a villain lair, which we'll which we'll get into. Yeah, that is just the, like incredibly um, man child uh, in design. Even the set decoration of more normal characters like we were talking about it in the first 20 minutes when they sit on a certain couch that Hugo weaving and, and Josephine Burns own. And, um, and we're like, th- that is one insanely wacky looking couch. And that's just the normal people. That's that, that's before you get to Phil Collins, incredible lair. So it just in general, it seems it has a very, um, like almost Dr. Seuss esque look to it a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, and and what what's interesting is that I I guess like I think Hugo and Josephine are supposed to sort of be the leads, but it does kind of yeah. start more with uh, focusing on the on Collins, uh, who mm-hmm. is made into like this presence because it, the opening scene is this like flashback of this uh, precocious bow tied child getting no ordinary dice for his birthday, but an heirloom from his father, and his mother is uh you know. You know, like 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 n- none of his friends. He doesn't. He clearly doesn't have any friends. No one showed up to his birthday party, and to make him feel better, she's just like, "Look, this dice controls your life now." Which don't say that to a child. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just seems like a bad idea, in my opinion. But she's like, "If I roll one, two, three, you can't sulk anymore that nobody showed up. If I roll four, five, six, you have to make the best of your party. Like no matter what. Like even if it even if it's horrible, you need to try and find the fun and humor in it." And he takes that philosophy completely to heart using <laughs> the dice to convince his brother Matthew to get on a raft into the river that soon goes out of control and his brother has to grab onto like the steel debris hanging over the river. There's this huge overhead like crane shot of the raft going over the edge. I don't know how much this cost, but like it actually doesn't seem like it was a cheap movie. Right. Um, it does not look cheap at all. No, and especially in terms of the sets they would have had to build for this. Um, yeah. And uh, the mom is like screaming, trying to get the her, you know, his brother Matthew, who is dangling. And uh, the 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 kid just falls in the river. You assume that the kids the kid died, and Roland is just kind of like laughing about it. It's just yeah. like it's just it's it it's seems- a, just a very dark and comically ridiculous way uh, that clearly like left an impression on on the young boy who, when he grows up as Phil Collins, doing his very over the top uh, British sadism performance that he's doing, where he's just like this eccentric insurance claims investigator who still behaves like a child because he believes that it is the most honest, unique period of uh, of life, uh, and who has I guess gotten very good at finding out who's defrauding insurance companies by being hyper aware of manipulation tactics because his entire hobby is doing (laughs) that is building these Rube Goldberg level level elaborate pranks uh, which uh, you know like some classic ones like just lighting a bag of dog shit on fire yeah, which we see him do in Classic like a little track. tracking shot of just his hand scooping up poop and putting it on the you know on the stoop and ringing the doorbell while he maniacally laughs. But also doing weirder ones that Jamie was alluding to, like <laughs> uh, dropping a suspended cage full of rabbits on a guy just walking his dog. Um, which I've ne- I actually don't know if I've seen that one before. I don't know if that's a classic prank. Um, <laughs> Calling a telephone booth from his balcony to attract a woman to it. So when she grabs the handle, she just super glues her hand to it and then has to listen to his terrible jokes over the phone. And then the next Um, one, which is wild because it just it's really like you go from the glue on the hand prank, which I would consider maybe more of a, a classic, you know, grade school prank. And then he has a remote control 
fully like a full-sized vehicle that he's using to pretty much try to run over a couple that's on the road Yeah, he operates it like an rc car yeah. with a dummy in it and he's literally just trying to like hit and run people yeah yeah and he's just up on his balcony laughing his ass off and i do like uh, part of the joke too is as the as the pranks get more just honestly deadly and pretty much attemptive murder um, the film doesn't tonally change, so it's still just as wacky and silly as he's doing these just outrageously dangerous things. Um, and I like that really got uh, a lot of uh, laugh out, of, a lot of laughter out of me. Yeah, and, and and he does all of these pranks from the comfort of his own, you know, sort of like home slash layer of what is an overgrown man child. And as I said, it's like the more just basically the more evil version of Pee Wee's house and Pee Wee's yes. big adventure where he even has like a pet goose and he has like these like weird Rube Goldberg setups for his morning routine. He's just laughing at all of his shit. Um, but he really enters the movie proper basically as like this force of almost like predestined punishment for the ostensible kind of like everyday normal domestic wheats family who we find out are very much not that uh you yeah, have the like ambitious ladder devil, climbing basically yeah uh but you have the ambitious ladder climbing like business focused jonathan played by hugo weaving you know very young and handsome hugo weaving though still with those mm-hmm. unique facial features that really emphasize how like slimy and wide-eyed he can be at times yeah. um and with this one is more then, uh, of a, like they they use it for more of a lovable nerd kind of thing a little yeah. bit his little like toy soldiers and yeah. you know like his uh his his uh very 90s dad kind of outfits and uh yeah. Uh, and, and, and Josephine Burns is playing Beth, his uh, very assertive and uh, artistic wife, who I've never seen in anything else, actually. But I kind of liked her in this. And I did, I, too. It made me kind of curious about her. And this character um, makes the creepiest fucking paintings I've ever seen. Like, there, there's one, we were making commentary yeah. about it. There's just, like, scenes where her paintings are in the background. And we're like, that is the most ominous-looking painting to put up above the dining room table. It's they, they almost look like, it's like children, but with giant giant dark eyes it's it very strange style but it's unique yeah they they like they they like to play adult twister in front of it for some reason which i couldn't (laughs) quite uh figure figure out because we're introduced to them hosting like a wine drunk party and you know playing a casual game of adult twister to which one of them says this game would be better naked and with baby oil um (laughs) also making plans to go and see musicals with their friends and uh but on on the night that they plan to go to a musical beth actually goes home uh early from the show forgetting that she was supposed to go straight there after work and she finds herself in the middle of uh, a very ominous thunderstorm and she hears something in the house and you know she's doing these walks through these like canted angle highways and descending the steps and these like overhead shots that emphasize how alone she is and you're not Mm -hmm. quite sure why until she finds out someone has invaded her home in this like hugely exaggerated Dooley's uh sorry dolly zoom shot on yeah. her shocked expression which is like incredible and she gets into an altercation with the guy who's stealing shit and trying to kill her with this huge slasher knife and as all australians would she brutally kills him with the family hunting crossbow and paling Absolutely. him through his torso getting blood all over the rope and walls and revealing it to be their family friend who was just over the other night getting drunk and playing twister and he goes you know geez beth can't you take a joke 
and yeah. we all just it's, even at the virtual watch we were like sick prank bro yeah like, what a, what, here's what a the good thing. joke man here's the thing it's like <laughs> I, don't ever do this kind of prank ever it's really just a recipe for disaster obviously but at the very least when you first scare her and you know you turn around and you've got the mask on that's when you take it off and you're like it's a prank you know my bad yeah you don't need to grab the michael myers knife and start chasing her around like what are you like you're asking for it man it's fucking wild and then uh what i what was is crazy because we've been already talking about the tone which is very silly very ridiculous very cartoonish and it's not like super violent. There's heavy implications of it, but it's not incredibly violent. And then you get this scene where she literally shoots the crossbow through his body, and then there's a string attached to it, and it actually shows him kind of moving through the impaled hole with the string for a little while before yeah, and he it's falls covered over. In blood. It's, it's yeah. crazy. I was like, and and honestly, if I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think anything else in this movie matches that kind of like really that that violence there, there might be implications but just showing somebody like going back and forth on their open wound on the string it, it, it i just was i was shocked by it compared to everything else um but yeah, it works no, it's effective I, it's very effective <laughs> yeah no it's it, it and it, it's it's just it's so bizarre it's weirdly gross mm-hmm. the whole the, the, it, this tone kind of affects the whole movie and and i think for yeah. some people that could end up being a little bit like hit or miss because it, it is inconsistent. I will say for sure. It is. Like it is it's definitely shockingly inconsistent. Yeah. Like, 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 and even the pacing, it is, it's a little wonky in the pacing and the dramatic characterizations they try to go for. Like they're a bit thin in terms of like, you know, yeah, the relationship between like, the couple, they try to make her feel kind of guilty for, for what happened in a sense. And, and, and I understand like she'd be going through that, you know, that turmoil in, in a way, but they, they don't, there's a weird focus on it because they're still trying to get the wackiness from like Phil Collins character and that whole debacle. But then they're also trying to go back to her and, you know, she'll be triggered by seeing the crossbow or seeing something that reminds yeah, her. Like, like, yeah. Like be, being like legitimately traumatized and stuff yeah. like that. And, and then I don't they, think they, that, that stuff doesn't that really register. Yeah. No, even, even though they tried to, because they did try yeah. to make that scene incredibly violent. Um, right. But 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 it's just because the way that Hugo and Josephine play their roles, they almost play them as ridiculously sometimes as the Phil Collins character. Yes. So it's not yes. like that. It, it isn't quite on like that Beetlejuice level of like you know Michael Keaton is genuinely far more absurd than anyone else around him mm-hmm. who's taking the situation more seriously. The whole movie kind of has like like that like that tone, tone is correct. Um, but like everything about it has that tone. It's almost like the entire movie is the movie's made by Beetlejuice, you know, like yeah. think of, think of it kind of that way. Yeah. Um, but, but even the judge who sentences her is like, yeah, that wasn't murder. You yeah, know, like, that guy was, was an idiot, prank, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the, the way that they get under Phil Collins's radar is that they try to uh, claim the number of damages that the house sustained during that altercation. And also that there was a second uh, unseen accomplice who got away with items who we later find out actually just was Hugo weaving, who was trying to fraud his own insurance company, like almost noir style pull a heist on his house and uh you know do a little light perjury and manslaughter and bam a new car you know like that's that's was ultimately (laughs) kind of his idea um and and collins arrives at the house to either approve or disprove the claim 
that they've made. And it is obviously a pretty openly ridiculous crime. So, it you know, you understand why it kind of warrants investigation. Uh, but the movie really does just get weirder from there. Like Collins really playing up his animated man child mannerisms mm-hmm. inside these like increasingly preposterous situations and production design. I love when Beth is like, he was here to assess the damage to the table, not play Yahtzee on it. Uh, and, yeah. and, or, or she's like, at least we know what happened to Rosemary's baby, like based on the vibes that he's giving off because he's so evil um and uh, and and as jamie was saying even just the the wheats are weird and their house is weird the experimental pastel colors of their house the creepy paintings and the battle between them and collins who is like sadistically pressuring them for you know more information about their absurd story and trying to get to the bottom of all of this and uh well beth Beth is just trying to move on kind of becomes the dramatic structure of the film until he actually uh, does find out that, you know, that Jonathan actually uh, did it. And then it turns into this whole thing where because he, he finds out by, you know, he was he was trying to keep the antique silverware they claimed was stolen, just like basically like in a safe. And one yep. of the forks was in a hiding spot in the garage in his like miniature toy soldier display. And Phil Collins actually does have a plan where he like shows him a fork and is like, it's a forgery. But he's like, I found your fork. And uh, what it does is it makes Hugo Weaving go and check his hiding spot, which Phil Collins observes. Yep. And he's just like. Hey, he's like, man, you shouldn't have checked your hiding spot, man. I know where your shit is. And even the guilt is getting to Hugo Weaving because there's uh, the cartoonish ways the movie plays up the panic and the stress of Hugo Weaving trying to get away with this crime. The biggest one is that crazy, surreal nightmare sequence, which is incredibly funny and grotesque with Hugo Weaving eating an entire rotisserie chicken in his wife's painting room while she's painting and then nearly choking to death in the background of the scene on the fork that he feels guilty for still having hidden Mm because it's literally inside of him and coming out of him. But it's done in these crazy animated camera movements where the camera will just like be zoomed in on his face. Then it will just like yank back and pull out to the ceiling to show you the fact that the wife is not paying attention to him dying in the corner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like it, it has that. Uh, I think you compared it to Nightmare on Elm Street, where he also like to end it. They have. I think it might be a Phil Collins um, figure that kind of comes out of the red painting. I was trying to figure out if it was that or if it was the friend who's oh, meant to yeah. be coming out of it I think with it the crossbow. Is the I think you're right because I, th- I think it's her. You, kind you of, can't really tell because he looks like a fucking Lucio Fulci monster. Yeah, yeah, because he <laughs> comes out of. She's been painting the portrait red for the base the whole time, so that by the time he pops out, it does kind of just look like he's covered in blood or something like that. It's it's really quite amazing. I also really like that it's established this strange kind of surreal tone already. So at first, when you're watching this scene, even though it is weird because you have Hugo weaving in the in the like just surrounded by all these paintings um eating a a full-on rotisserie chicken i was just i was just buying it you know i was kind of like well we've already seen some wacky shit from phil collins kind of the set design here so i don't think that we're in anything different than we've already been in um and then the it just kind of escalates uh and just keeps going and going more absurd more absurd until she finally wakes up or he wakes up 
Um, yeah, which, by the way, is in a crazy shot where it starts in his mouth as he's screaming, like we're looking at his tonsils. Right. Then it pulls out so that you get a, a, a double shot of uh, both of them screaming upright, completely in bed. And then it goes over and zooms into her mouth and comes out the other side. So, again, there's a there's a crazy kind of uh, just animated fluidity to yes. the way that this has been visually uh, constructed. And I, I would say that was probably the thing I was the most impressed about, because I do think that in terms of. Uh, writing it it's it's very funny and it's weird and it's 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 something that i enjoyed but it's very inconsistent and 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 doesn't totally nail everything it's trying to do but on a directing level i was it he almost directs it so well that it 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 kind of works like even the stuff that maybe shouldn't work about it kind of works and i was i was impressed by that especially yeah no i i totally agree because i i did feel detached a lot of the time from anything that the characters were personally going through but I was just absolutely fascinated and enthralled any single time like one of their performances matched up with the styling of the directing and everything like that which is honestly consistent throughout the the whole thing um, and so I think that is where it's 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 real strength lies uh, it just yeah it, it comes up short a little bit when you're trying to actually care about her overcoming the trauma um, and and things like that. It just it's just too cartoonish uh, with the rest of the film. I, I do in a sense I could I could see um, him balancing it out a little bit more just having that scene where she kills the the friend. Um, it seems like you could use maybe one or two more of those scenes, but at the same time, my brain tells me how much I love all this cartoonish nonsense. so it's 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 hard for me to really, know exactly what I want from this movie to be honest it's such a yeah. weird anomaly. yeah I mean I, I I think that one of the things that it just ends up kind of doing is that it might have been better served by either trying to lean it into a little bit darker and actually mm. trying to go like full Beetlejuice horror movie mode with it yeah. or uh, because it, it it does feel weird that sometimes you get like some flatter scenes where just straight up dialogue scenes where Phil Collins is his performance is kind of left stranded to just kind of be weird and be like, he's just stunt mm. casting and yeah. you know, but uh, cause, cause I don't think he's bad, but no. I do think that it is like one of those things where you, if you're going to do a performance like that, you need to have a little bit more tight control over the characters. And this one seems pretty lax and pretty messy in terms of just like letting it go wherever he thought he could find a gag. Uh, yeah. Which is something that again makes more sense from sketch comedians and in with with really random wacky pacing like and in the context freaked of freaked because it's like the premise itself just it just allows you to kind of be all over the place a little bit more chaotic whereas this they're trying to really set up certain character motivations and yeah and the, the, changing this does have a more obviously grounded narrative yeah. and script to it right yeah. and uh, so you know th- those two things are uh, kind of fighting each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I will say that the actual sequencing itself, like when he does functionally just become a bit of like the Beetlejuice figure where he's just like pulling tricks on them, like calling the cops to meet Beth at home and trigger her by having the crossbow weapon she killed her friend with, like come back to her house and they go... It's so unfortunate, Beth. We're not going to be able to find your antique cutlery, ma'am. You know, like it was a really beautiful, irreplaceable set. We're so sorry. As she notices that there's... 
Phil Collins has displayed a big Christmas tree with all of the cutlery laid in it as if it was like ornaments and uh, hanging uh, below a giant steel me star on top. And just the level of stress on her face and the insane visual construction of it where there's like split diopter shots of the cops like looking at her and not right behind them at the evidence of her fraud and it climaxing on that like vomit gag where she just projectile vomits all over them and then throws the tree out the window which then cuts to the exterior where Collins is like maniacally laughing at all of the chaos that he's caused in like this wide angle lens shot of him just chomping on a disgusting cheeseburger Like, it's just like when you get into that level of mania is when the movie excels. Yeah. And he seems like the way that his character moves just physically seems completely disconnected from reality. It's almost as if he can teleport or he's like a ghost or truly a demon or something like that that can just kind of <laughs> go in and out of of the realm <laughs> that he's messing yeah, he's with. A, he's a demon time. that loves playing Monopoly and treating your life like it's uh, Monopoly yeah. essentially. There's yeah, even a, there's even a great uh, transition where he throws the dice into the air at one point rolling for them and then it it uh, tr- it does like a, a very smooth uh, sort of like fade into another shot where the dice are landing and it's landing on the board game that he's playing with them and they're like like what do you want from us like what are you doing uh with this because when he says that he found out that they did it or that hugo weaving did it he says i am approving your claim and that's because he's gonna blackmail them man he wants his cut of that fraud money he wants to gleefully control and torture them yeah. and as you would expect do big musical numbers uh, yes, although they are all uh lip 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 syncing yeah i did uh, say to, uh, i got you under my skin I did say at the beginning before we watched this that I was like, I I just want one, like if this is going to be a truly wacky comedy and Phil Collins is going to be the star, I want one musical number. And we did get it. So I was very happy about that. I was a little disappointed that was lip syncing, but it was also, it kind of adds to a little bit of the wackiness as well, having Phil Collins lip sync. And I'm pretty sure, correct yeah, me just if be I'm like, wrong, it's but delightful, it's a delicious, to lovely. As he's, he's yeah. like driving his little freaking like toy car around and shit. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did, uh, I was very happy about that. And, and briefly speaking about the, the split diopter sequence, I love too that it's like, three or four split diopter shots in a row that get closer and closer. Like the cop's face gets yes. more close up as the, as the tree does as well. And it just, it really induces that kind of anxiety feeling. Um, but then at the same time, because it's so close up and, and cartoonish, it still gives the, the, the kind of wacky quality that it, that it's been doing the whole time. But, um, yeah, yeah. The, these prank sequences after, you know, the, everything has been revealed to, to, to Collins's character is it's just so much fun and awesome. Yeah, they are like he he really is just having a blast. And Phil Collins is clearly having a blast because I, I will say I was surprised when we put it on or even when I looked it up that he wasn't doing the soundtrack on it because yeah. I was like, man, you would I would have assumed that, you know, Phil Collins, he's a pretty big musician at this point in his career, especially mm-hmm. like how is he not like being like, no, 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 I'm doing the score. I, I get to do double duty. I'm in control here. Yeah, but uh, he wanted to focus. No, t- he wanted to be one with this character. <laughs> That's right. He was totally down to just lend his weirdo vibe to this maniacal character and just do crazy shit on screen for uh, Mr. Stephen Elliott. And um, like I think you mentioned it already, but having that um, kind of Danny Elfman 
esque score that they do is really effective for this the, the cartoonish qualities because it is doing that thing where it's like oh, for sure. if a if a character walks off in a certain way because they're maybe reacting and they have like a certain emotion about their walk, there will be uh, music that kind of directly goes with their footsteps, that kind of thing. It's very much like Looney Tunes esque, that kind of thing. It's 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 directly um, kind of telling you uh, beat for beat how to take in the scene and the music itself and the performances. Um, and I I do really like that. It is very much like just trying to be Danny Elfman. I think a lot of the time, but uh, but but that style at least really does line up well with what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it, like, this is a, this is a pretty well, uh, directed and well scored, uh, mm-hmm. film, even if it is just like, it owes clearly so much to the, uh, the popularity of, uh, Burton and Tim Burton. But the thing is, <laughs> yeah. the thing is, if you're, if you're going to try and copy Tim Burton, this is the best stuff to try to copy. Hell yeah. You know, no one's yeah. trying to copy, you know, if, if you, if you want to go back to him, go back to Pee Wee. Uh, go back mm-hmm. to yeah. uh, Beetlejuice. Go back to Edward I don't know. Even Batman Returns. Yeah. Edward Scissorhands. You know, like this is there was a there was a time where that guy was a, a genuinely you know like unparalleled uh, you know uh, image maker. And mm-hmm. Danny Elfman was allowed to just go off like fucking crazy. So, yes, and did he ever? Yeah, yeah, and uh, but uh, eventually, uh, Collins makes Jonathan a deal. Uh, that if, if if he rolls one, two, and three, once again going back to this dice thing and this games thing, because he is a, he he is a you know he's a, a precocious child at heart. You know he does still uh, totally adhere to um, the the idea of games and rules, although he is clearly willing to break the rules when he wants to do stuff for fun himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, if I roll a one, two, and or three. I leave your life forever, four, five, and six. Hugo has to be his slave for 60 minutes. It's obviously yeah, such an ominous proposition based on what we've seen him intricately stage for non-consenting right. participants in his pranks. So yeah, I was like, 60 <laughs> minutes with somebody, you know, a little more boring, it'd be like, okay, you know, he's going to do his laundry, his dishes, clean his 60 house, minutes whatever. with Jigsaw, yeah, yes th- or no? This is, <laughs> yeah, this is 60 minutes with Jigsaw, the devil, Freddy Krueger. Like, this motherfucker's going to make you do some things in that hour so i was like hugo don't do it but come on <laughs> yeah he's like he's like, he's like a bond villain you know he's doing he's doing a little bit of everything yeah um but it but it, it does result in this for na- in this finale where the wheats decide to finally do play his game when especially when beth realizes that in some ways jonathan is quite similarly a man child as as he is <laughs> with his toy soldiers and with his insurance scams that he treats like a like a game that you either win or lose so mm-hmm. they finally decide yeah. they're going to take this game to roland's home and his joke like workshop layer which is this insane feat of production design again somewhere between 80s tim burton but also things like Willy Wonka while we were watching Jamie was like dude Dr. Seuss totally. uh, I, I thought it kind of looked like the Toy Factory finale in Child's Play 2 a little bit because it's yeah. this giant like multi-layered set with like a bedroom addict where he has a a hexagonal floor, gold bed sheets, a bedroom with a pet goose in it who at one point participates in the musical number and chases and attacks Hugo around the set. <laughs> uh, a, a main floor with a with like level with creepy dolls and toys and stuffed animals, pastel colored walls, giant gadgets and mouse traps and just like clown shit, uh, bouncy ball pits, electrocuting like metal slides. He has a giant birthday play date room filled with like candy and chocolate and 
and balloons and then a very bottom floor where he has a giant pool party room that he gets to uh, via the giant uh, big slide which kind of becomes important when Hugo finds out that uh, Collins's brother Matthew from the opening didn't actually die but is actually a vegetative quadriplegic which we will get into when we talk about the incredibly weird finale (laughs) (laughs) oh man is it ever weird just just the image itself when when it's all set up i won't spoil it yet but oh my absolute god yeah the the funhouse uh design is so awesome it's honestly incredibly intricate very colorful what i like too is that it it's they they slowly unveil everything like you have hugo discovering it and you know you have like his the middle ground that he's looking at and then he goes to his upper bedroom and everything but then eventually once phil collins is is involved and and they're kind of battling each other in that space they start to go to like even uh, below the contraptions of where the middle floor is and I just found that the camera eventually gets pretty much every angle of that set by the time the finale's over. Um, and so they, they, they took full advantage of whatever they built there. Cause that thing is just, it's so crazy. It, it, it really makes no logical sense, which, you know, makes sense to Phil Collins character, but it really is when you're looking at this thing, just a bunch of nonsense contraptions. Um, and it's, it's such a blast. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and it is like the design of it is basically the basis for the finale because it's Mm -hmm. like, how can we get the camera to crane and move through this very intricately designed set and have all of these actors finally all in the same room as one another in a space that occupies the same level of an animated gleeful weirdness that their performances have. And, you know, I, I would say that it, it, it mostly there's, there's, it leaves a little something to be desired in some of the staging. Like a lot of it is Phil Collins, like just like holding a gun at Hugo and then getting into who's come up with the bigger uh, Rube Goldberg machine. One of my favorite Um, moments is when they like have the kind of square off moment and, um, and they do, they do the, the, the dice roll, which has been, you know, true to Phil Collins character the entire time. And it's like the one time he doesn't get it. And he's just like, ah, fuck it. And just starts fighting him instead. (laughs) It's like, it didn't matter the entire time. He's just been, he's just really been looking for the mischief in the fight. Yeah, well, because he kidnaps Beth and he ties her up and puts her in a goofy cart on his slide where there's a saw blade waiting at the bottom to slice her in half when he pulls a giant, like, fancy curtain rope with one hand. And, you know, Phil Collins is just on a gold telephone chomping on a giant watermelon while he's doing his evil monologue about it. And uh, Hugo Weaving counters it with his own violent Rube Goldberg contraption, which is that he calls the number on his rubber ducky business card, which is three, 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 three. It triggers his answering machine, uh, which then pulls a cord that will drop his handicapped brother who is dangling suspended over the pool. Uh, and who will drown an insane move that in the moment, you know, Jamie and I were freaking out because it was like, like are these protagonists going to be like more evil than he is? Yeah. Because like he's tried to run people over with a car, I guess, but they've never, he's not killed a handicapped man. who's also completely innocent, innocent in this whole thing. Yeah. So it's just like, it's, it's so funny to watch. And I think the funniest uh, framing of it for me is just them having the, the kind of like 
they're, they're fighting because it's been revealed to Phil Collins that his brother is dangling over the pool and everything. And as they're fighting, you can just see the guy in the wheelchair dangling. The above imagery the water of him swinging back and forth in the back yeah, of the frame. I was so ridiculous mind. and cruel. Yeah, I was just I was losing it. it. I thought it was so funny and and like weirdly disturbing and <laughs> just it's such a it's such a turn for for hugo's character it's on purpose because they're trying to be like yeah he's matching his energy now to defeat him but it's just so cruel and uh and and dark honestly but it makes it funny yeah well and it also you know gets it does get revealed a little bit at least in the in the climax that it yes. was all a bit of uh stage production because we he get pranked you know this all yeah, we get all this the, this fight between Weaving and Collins, and it's all in this like wide angle lens shot on their like sweaty faces. They're you know they're they're rolling the dice. I did think it was going to come up the wife, and I, maybe it is because the wife just does leave uh, him by the end. But I I was curious if they were going to address the fact that Hugo totally bets her life, thinking that that saw blade is real. He bets fifty fifty, and he's just like yeah, if uh, if if you roll, slice her in half. You know, if I roll, we're free to go. You know, and obviously he ends up winning that. But it was like just the fact that he was willing to bet that on the dice was kind of insane. Mm -hmm. uh, it ends up in an altercation where they're sledgehammering a board games. They're throwing each other into paint cans and everything. And Collins does eventually make his way back up to the rope with Hugo like tugging at his leg and he pulls on it and Beth uh, slides down. But it, the saw blade is then revealed to have been a prank the entire time because this is a whole movie about the people who just play the most classic pranks. Yes. And Deception. Uh, that level of re that level of uh, reveal uh, or sorry, relief that she feels um, <laughs> yeah. at, at that reveal um, when she's just like, oh, my God. But also then anger, which is one of my favorite details of it. And then uh, Phil Collins of it. laughing his ass off about it. Like, haha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, because she safely lands in his cartoon uh, car, but he obviously did really scare her. Yeah. Uh, and so she makes the call to drop the brother into the pool, which then freaks Collins out. And he's like, you know, he dives into the pool. He's crying. He's freaking out. He's trying to untie him. He basically almost kills himself trying to get his brother out of his wheelchair so he doesn't drown. And then he pulls the head off and it realizes he realizes that his brother was actually a dummy and that they pranked him, too, with another classic gag. Classic. prank. Um, I remember that one. Ugh, yeah, you're I almost drowning handicapped brother gag. Everyone knows this one. Yeah, we had a pool and, growing uh, up, so I got to pull that off every summer. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and it does lead to a pretty actually like 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 an ending that I think is well thought out. And I do wonder if it was like this idea was more focused on. I think I might have even liked the movie more, sure. uh, which is that Jonathan uh, goes in and saves Collins from drowning. And Collins is obviously incredibly upset, incredibly angry because he thought his brother had had just died. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> the way that when he pulls him out of the pool and they both sit on the edge of the pool, it's just Hugo Weaving and Phil Collins next to each other, both having dealt with this incredibly stressful thrillery finale um and then they both just start laughing very quietly <laughs> and then it starts getting a little bit more pranksters and they start pranksters bro that's right man it literally is respect they go wow your prank was funny and <laughs> they start laughing prank, at each other's dude. pranks on each other and how <laughs> elaborate and crazy the scheming all was and they're just slowly losing their minds with laughter as you can hear the police sirens pulling up to the ridiculous you know the ridiculous house they're about and whatever circumstance they just came across that they'll have to try to explain yeah and Beth <laughs> walks away and she starts like smiling too and you're, you're just, I, I, uh, I didn't, I quite, I kind of understand the Hugo weaving change 
um, as as if, as insane as it is, um, I really do enjoy it, and I no, I she, can she, see she that. you're right. She to, she to, should have totally had the Texas Chainsaw, like she's the one ri- uh, go, uh, running away in horror still. Yeah, and and, and like both <laughs> men, and uh, Hugo and uh, Phil you know, become best friends, and she's yes, just like I'm fucking absolutely. I'm I agree one hundred percent. I I think if that was the ending, <laughs> I would even probably go up a star on oh, this. Oh yeah, totally. That, that it was just two men torturing this wife, you know, <laughs> until they find friendship amongst each other. And she's left alone. <laughs> yeah, because because again, that's just that is that's part of what I mean when I say that I don't think it's totally thought through the characterizations. Like yeah, I don't yeah. think totally. Like you, you don't even have to like like this movie is being wacky and weird. So I'm not asking for it to make a whole lot of sense. Right, right. But there's a few slight changes they could make that I think would send home the themes a little bit I of agree. the idea of these being two men who play incredibly gross games. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it makes just a couple choices that kind of undercut it just a little bit, yeah. uh, even if all of the visual sophistication in the directing is on display to totally capture the fact that these men totally see the, the, this world as a, as a game in which to to, uh, manipulate and, and stage and play c- crazy uh, productions and and shows on each other, basically. And I do love that the, like the lesson isn't learned. They don't have an epilogue where Hugo and Phil kind of have a discussion about like, well, maybe we should just tone it down, but we can respect each other, or anything like that. It's literally just they respect each other for the insane pranks that they were pulling on each other to 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 get through the situation, and they laugh together, and that's it. Like there's the, like the lesson learned here is is very gray, and I just <laughs> I I love that so much. Honestly, it makes me. Besides, I agree with you that the, those themes could be wrapped up a little tighter, and I think like what you said might have been a a good example of that. Um, but the one thing that I think they did do right is is the 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 like almost no lesson learned by Hugo in a sense, and they just like each other more now. I think that that's oh yeah, so no funny. doubt conceptually, it's a great ending. Yeah, it's so funny. It's unbelievably funny. Um, so yeah, I I I really. Uh, I, I, do you want to wrap it up? Is did you have anything? Yeah, else? I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I think I think we can pivot towards reductive rating round. But yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say that this is in the high three territory for me. Yeah, but like a, a really, a, I would say a pretty damn high three. Yeah, it's like, like I, if I did point numbers, it'd be like a three point nine. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, like I'm I'm in a very similar boat because I, I I do think that like the small things that gets wrong are kind of like little nitpicks. Yeah. Um yeah. and and everything else about it is, you know, like really well handled. I, I, I do think that it is a bit of a tonal mess, uh, both in just you know how it's been uh, edited together and in uh some of the performances, but mostly the Phil Collins performance. Um but that's also part of kind of the appeal of doing like a crazy wacky stunt casting and putting him into a movie that is, you know, like just a genuinely a, a fun house of man children playing incredibly elaborate pranks on one another to the point where, you know, we have a guy who's directing it. So it's like Nightmare on Elm Street meets Willy Wonka, you know, yeah, like it's just yeah, totally, you know, like that, like on, on a certain level, I meets think if Joker. that's <laughs> what you're trying to go for, you're going to end up with some mixed results. And um, but I but I, I will say I was quite surprised having not seen a Stephen Elliott film mm-hmm. Um that the the directing and the visual style was maybe the most impressive thing about it and was what really turned it from being like what would have just been a cr- simple crime gone wrong farce 
that, uh, you know, could have been handled in a more boring way. And the filmmaking is genuinely like energetic and diabolical (laughs) and just like, you know, all over the place, like just as invested in the contraptions and the bizarre, you know, uh, you know, di- dynamicism of the sets and like the, the camera is excited to explore all of this shit. And it, the camera is what helps you get excited about the way these guys are supposed to be getting excited about the games that they play and stuff. So, yeah, like I, I think it's a totally bizarro thriller um, that I'm surprised has only been seen by 400 people on Letterboxd. So yeah, this I would is a hidden genuinely recommend. Apparently for some people, this is available on Tubi. Uh, there is also, I think, uh, a, a YouTube copy for anyone who can't find uh, it by other means. Nice. So I would recommend people going out and, and, and checking this out if you want to see the mix of uh, Dr. Seuss and Child's Play 2, um, <laughs> as uh, Jamie and I are going to be uh, pitching it as. That's our, uh, that's our uh, official film critic's comparison it's it's like this meets this on crack you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but uh yeah very very strange uh very very carnival-esque and yeah definitely filled made me feel like a uh like i was missing a lost tim burton film and i definitely think this is going to become a movie that i show people and i'm going to come back to and i don't know maybe maybe the flaws kind of uh you know, uh, become less important to me in, in a couple watches. I see this as one that possibly goes up in rating for me. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's, it, it's just, it's, I love its commitment to its wackiness. I really do love Phil. Col- I, I think everyone's great in this, but Phil Collins just fully committing to the wackiness. Um, even though sometimes the, the certain tonal things can be a little bit messy and unclear. Uh, I still found every single time he was on screen to be just, just so in- incredibly interesting. Um, he's not only does he do like a, a very cartoonish performance, but with the styling, like you you have him doing these super close ups on his face as he's contorting his face and all that. Very similar to what we were talking about with uh, with Freaked. Um, he is kind of doing almost what Alex Winters is doing, just in the sense of the the hyperbolized. Uh, facial expressions and the way he does like maniacal laughter and things like that. It's just, uh, he's, he's really going for it. And you can tell that Phil Collins is having such a fun time. Um, and I did see here that he, he did later say that he thinks it's a, like a great film and that he was, he says that he was better in it than in Buster, which I haven't seen Buster, but apparently he thinks that this is, this is his performance, the one to, to look out for. So I think it's, I think it's great. Um, I, I do think, like we said, some of the more serious stuff of the it, within the characters isn't handled um, incredibly well, or it's just because of the, to- the the tone. It just doesn't quite um, just, just just doesn't quite land it. It's 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 a little bit too wacky for also doing this whole thing where it's like she's trying to get over her the trauma of killing her friend, um, and that scene where she does kill her friend just. There's really nothing else An like insane it scene. Yeah. yeah, so I would have liked a little more balance in that regard, but a, a lot of me also just likes how fucking it, it, it is the main is. scene that's like full on like horror. Yes, and I, honestly, I, yes. I think I think it could have stood to do that a little bit more. Like the fact that it kind of climaxes that early with that. Like maybe I feel like more horror brought into that finale could have been nice too. I agree. I agree. Um, and it just it, it. I think it would have made more sense for. 
uh, Josephine's character as well. Like I think Hugo and Phil get a really good ending and hers just feels a little disconnected from everything that she's gone through. So um, it, it, it feels a little strange in that sense, but I don't know. I, I do think that I might upgrade this eventually. This is something I want to show people. It's a it's a true hidden gem through and through. Like we said, 400, 500 people on Letterboxd. And this yep, thing this looks is the, the rare, really good. The rare Sleezoids uh, discovery by happenstance because I was just scrolling on the 1993 Midnight Madness slate and I was like, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phil and Collins. This what? is a hell of a find. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm really happy that, it, that is, it was kind of exactly what I wanted it to be when you presented it to me, when you just said it's Phil <laughs> Collins. It's a wacky comedy. He's pranking people as an insurance agent. I'm like, it, yep. it, honestly, kind of the tone that it took was where my brain was at a little bit in the hopes that that's what it would become. And it was exactly that. So, um, yeah, I can't be mad. I, I think this might get the upgrade. But for now, the, the tonal stuff is still hits me a little bit strangely. So I'll, I'll give it the strongest possible three that I can give it. Highly recommend it, though. Highly recommend Hell yeah, same here. Uh, that'll wrap it up, I think, for uh, this week's episode. That was uh, Freaked from 1993 as well as Frauds from 1993. Uh, thanks so much uh, for for uh, listening. Uh, I guess uh, this is where we normally have the guest plug, so I guess we will plug ourselves. Uh, yeah. Listen to our show. Please. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please keep listening. That's right. You got. I mean, you made it this far. I'm. I'm proud of you. Yeah. You know. You. You listen. You listen to an entire episode on a movie you probably haven't seen. And they were probably uh, longer than 400 the listens. <laughs> yeah. So this is just how it goes on this show. So thanks. Uh, yeah. Thank. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We will be back uh, in one week's time over on the Patreon uh, with a joseph h lewis episode the uh, uh b hollywood filmmaker of his era who did all kinds of uh noirs and thrillers and westerns and um i'm trying to remember what else he, he made around he made he made a lot of different kinds of movies look up Jace joseph h lewis's career you would be like wow this guy kind of made a little bit of everything um and uh we are going to be specifically though talking about two of his uh weirder ones because most people will know him for the big combo which is like one of the more famous like b noir films and um the killers i believe it's called or no sorry i'm getting it confused with the the, the don siegel film gun crazy is the other noir right. that, that that he made that's very very good and most people will kind of know that one especially if you have like a criterion subscription those very frequently get put on criterion um but uh we're going to be talking about his 1945 noir called uh my name is julia ross which is actually uh one of the early um gaslight thrillers and uh, definitely gets to the point where it, it, it leans into uh, more horror than it does noir. And um, we're going to be pairing that with Terror in a Texas Town from 1958, which is uh, another uh, virtual watch find for Jamie and, and I, where uh, Sterling Hayden plays a, a Swedish whaler who hangs out in an American Western, including <laughs> uh, carrying a harpoon around that he uses to fight the uh, various corrupt bandits who are taking over the town. Let's so go. Uh, it's a r- absolutely ridiculous premise. And uh, Joseph H. Lewis, he was a very, very good and sturdy director. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those the, he, he kind of nails both the gaslight thriller and the wacky Western. So that's what we're going to be talking about on Patreon ne- uh, next week. And 
then in two weeks time over on the main feed we are going to be back with a special guest who uh hasn't chosen their films yet so <laughs> we are on it we're trying to figure it out we're in the dms we're talking about it That's but right. i'm sure it's going to be fun uh it is it is a guest who has been on uh, uh once a year for a very long time so and uh i'm sure people will be very interested in his picks when he eventually messages me back <laughs> um but uh until then uh, I don't. I don't know what we're up to. I'm at TIFF. I'm writing reviews at TIFF. So go yep. on over to the to the Letterbox. I'm sure I'm watching all kinds of new movies. People might be interested. And I've already filed a bunch of screener reviews. And uh, Jamie, I'm sure, having just finished the tour and having just caught up on recording, is going to be going right back into movie mindset mode. I it's think be watching I am. So many movies a day. Yep. I'm gonna be. <laughs> I'm gonna be catching up on some 2023 two and three star movies. I'm sure. Uh, and. Uh, I am, Samurai you know what, the, the band is also, we're, we're mixing the EP right now, so I, I will be listening Ooh. to song, new songs, and I, I, you know, if anyone does listen to new the New music band, on the way. Yeah, new music is on the way, and I listened to the two first mixes that we got from the new mixer that we're working with, and they sound pretty damn beefy, so yeah, stay tuned if you're into yeah. it. Spotify, I'm assuming Apple Music, along came a spider, check yes. out Jamie's band. Check it out. Do it up. Yeah, look at look at us getting our own plugs in. This yeah, week. yeah, we're, yeah, we're we're doing it now. We got a chance. <laughs> we do stuff too. Yeah, we not do just stuff our guests, you know. The show too. Look at that. That that's that's right. You know, come <laughs> on. I don't watch fucking four movies a day at TIFF for you. None of you to you know go and read that shit. <laughs> exactly. Come Put on. in the work. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. That being said, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it easy. Keep it sleazy.